Yes. Is hell. Okay. And on this week's show, the hits keep coming as we talk anti-Semitism, white supremacy, police violence, mass incarceration, hate, the weaponization of Purim. So, something for everyone, especially if you are the kind of person who just hates hate. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell This Week's Live 4-Hour This Is Hell, is being broadcast from the studios of Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, streaming live right now somewhere. Alex, where are we streaming live right now? Uh, that is Mixler, M-I-X-L-R dot com slash this hyphen is hyphen hell. I'm working on getting rid of those hyphens, everybody. Actually, you know what? Uh, I'm going to throw a link on the front page of our site. So if you just go to thisishell.com, in like two minutes, there will be a link up there. We are also podcast entirely shortly, at, and it's in our entirety, shortly after our live broadcast, also at thisishell.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio, and on Instagram at thisishell. On this week's show... Earlier this month, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar created a controversy when she blamed the power of money from the right-wing lobbying group, the American-Israeli, American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, over U.S.-Israel relations. Shortly after those comments, Congresswoman Omar questioned people who have allegiance to other countries as well as the United States, not saying Israel by name, but many believe that was what she implied. We'll start this week by talking to Barnaby Rain, a doctoral student at Columbia University in modern European political thought, who wrote the Guardian article, Ilhan Omar should be more radical about Israel, not less. By focusing on lobbyists, Omar suggests that America's interests are corrupted by a small clique. The truth is far worse. Barnaby supports Ilhan criticizing Israel, but is critical of the way she did it, shifting all responsibility for U.S.-Israeli relations on Israel and the influence of money, which creates cover for the U.S. and its policies toward Israel and may even exacerbate anti-Semitism. But we'll go deeper into what anti-Semitism is with Barnaby, who also wrote an article in January at Salvage titled Jewophobia, which you can find at salvage.zone. After we have what I'm certain will be a delightful conversation on anti-Semitism and anti-anti-Semitism, tune in for what that is, in our second hour this week. White supremacy is all around us and is being fought by black people in a million different ways each and every day, in ways that you may not recognize. The problem is you may not recognize that white supremacy happens around us in a million different ways every day. We'll talk to Akiba Solomon and Kenria Rankin, co-authors of How We Fight White Supremacy, a field guide to black resistance, a collection of essays and interviews that features past This Is Hell guests Adrian Marie Brown and Robin D.G. Kelly. No, they're not going to give us some 12-step program to ending white supremacy, but they will describe how white supremacy is being consistently challenged. Akiba is the senior editorial director of Color Lines and a National Association of Black Journalists award-winning journalist and editor. Akiba is the co-editor of Naked Black Women Bear All About Their Skin, Hair, 
hips, lips, and other parts. Kenria is an award-winning author as well, journalist, editorial consultant, and the editorial director at Color Lines. Kenria is the author of four books, including Bet on Black, African American Women Celebrate Fatherhood in the Age of Barack Obama. After we've talked anti-Semitism and white supremacy, we'll get to another exercise in white supremacy, the police. There's a long history of police violence in Chicago, and we are very fortunate to be joined today in studio by a frontline witness to that history, the incredible Flint Taylor. Regular listeners of This Is Hell know Flint from appearing on our show umpteen times to discuss what can often be brutal law enforcement. Flint has successfully defended the murder of Fred Hampton by Chicago police. He's defended victims of police violence not only in Chicago, but Milwaukee, New Orleans, and elsewhere. He was part of the team of lawyers that ended up sending former Chicago police detective accused of torturing innocent victims into guilty pleas, John Burge, some of whom were given death sentences. And he helped negotiate the historic reparations that the city of Chicago would have uh, been given in the wake of the Burge torture case. We'll talk to Flint about his new memoir, The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. Flint is the founding partner of the People's Law Office in Chicago. Find out more about the People's Law Office at peopleslawoffice.com. And in the final hour of this week's This Is Hell, we are continuing our series of interviews featuring contributors to the book Abolishing Carceral Society, which is put together by a group called the Abolition Collective. A couple of weeks ago, we had uh, this enlightening conversation with writer and scholar Sijani, Sijani K. Reddy on her essay in the book, We Don't Need No Education, De-Schooling as an Abolitionist Practice, which you can find at our website, thisishell.com. And I suggest you listen, because Sijani's de-schooling maybe rethink our entire show and how, in fact, we actually manufacture dissent. In our fourth hour today, we'll talk to Colleen Hackett and Ben Turk, co-authors of Shifting Carceral Landscapes, Decarceration and the Reconfiguration of White Supremacy, their contribution to the collection. Colleen and Ben don't want us fooled by the prison and justice reforms of the elites, which do nothing but reinforce, yep, you guessed it, white supremacy. But it's worse than that. The U.S. prison system, prison system encourages racism, racial violence, and creation of race-based gangs that then take them out onto the streets once released from stir. We can challenge mass incarceration, but we can't do that without challenging white supremacy. Colleen is an educator and critical criminologist at Colorado State University in Pueblo. Colleen organizes political education classes with incarcerated women, co-edits an anti-authoritarian newsletter written by femme and trans prisoners called Unstoppable, and co-edits The Fire Inside, a collection of report backs and reflections from contemporary prison rebels. Find out more about Unstoppable at unstoppable.noblogs.org and find out more about uh, The Fire Inside at thefireinside.noblogs.org. Ben is a co-editor of The Fire Inside as well and a member of Milwaukee Incarcerated Workers Organization Committee. You can also find out more about the Abolition Collective, who put this book together, at abolitionjournal.org. Org. Then we'll wrap the whole show up with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff weaponizes Purim. And I'll openly and publicly wonder just how great hate is. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? I'm all in for Beto. <laughs> he's... He's the only thing that brings me joy because he's just so bad and so it's just it's so terrible. It's the only thing that makes me smile anymore. You are going to love 
listener feedback today. Yeah, I, I'm worried that that guy somehow appeared on the show in the early to mid-90s. Uh, so let's just tease everybody with that. There's a connection between our show and Beto O'Rourke that you will not believe. Besides me uh, campaign or volunteering for his campaign. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is seven hangover cures. According to an article from 2017 at healthline.com called Cure Your Hangover by Taking These Seven Steps. One, limit alcohol intake, which Healthline suggests you share on Pinterest, but we do not. Okay, sorry, here we go. Avoid drinks with congeners. Congeners? Congeners. Congeners. Conjurers. Including wine and liquor. Stay hydrated. Take vitamin supplements the next day, like B12. Get plenty of sleep. And the next morning, eat a good breakfast. Is that seven? It goes through here. Yeah. It's fine with me. Uh, and the next morning, eat a good breakfast. And, oh, yes, and here's the seventh one, and have a drink. <laughs> it makes this week's hangover cure incredibly long and complicated, but to sum up, don't drink much. Don't drink liquor or wine. Drink lots of water. Take vitamins. Sleep. Eat a good breakfast the next day, followed by your favorite alcoholic <laughs> beverage. I don't know about that. That just sounds like, that just sounds like your, your daily schedule, John. <laughs> it is. Uh, let me see. Uh, no. No, I, uh, well, I avoid conjurers, so I guess that part's true. And I don't spend much time on Pinterest. So, and why would you post your drinking on Pinterest? That just seems kind of masochistic. Or narcissistic, one or the other, or both at the same time. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is hell. What's so freaking great about hate? What makes hate so attractive that so many people along the political spectrum or sphere or Dali-esque melting 3D chessboard our political spectrum actually exists on? What is it about hate that seductively lures the innocent into its well, weird deep well and web of loathing? Why... Don't the repellent feelings hate give us toward other human beings repel us from its distaste for humanity? Why don't we detest and despise detesting and despising others? I mean, those truly are detestable and despising feelings, so what gives? Do detestable and despising feelings targeted against someone else actually make us feel good? Because that's sick, man. That's like schadenfreude, pleasure-derived from another person's misery. And and did you ever notice how nobody had a word for that feeling except the Germans? And do you want to end up like the Germans who pulled a VW Beetle Ponzi scheme to fund the rise of the Third Reich and then gave meth to soldiers' wives back home? Is that the kind of world you want to live in? Okay, maybe that is the kind of world you want to live in because you're kind of curious what all the fuss is about meth. And you think you got a really good shot at being the one person who will actually end up with a VW bug. So why aren't we hostile toward the hostility towards others? Disgust should be disgusting and intolerance should be intolerated. Why are so many people attracted to and motivated by hate? Immediately following Donald Trump being elected president, from his inauguration to several marches immediately immediately afterwards, the hashtag resistance movement was getting hundreds of thousands of people to march in the streets with a laser-like focus on their unwillingness to accept Trump as their president because of their hatred 
toward Trump. Yet the people I know who went to those marches here in Chicago, out in L.A. and elsewhere, told me that the marches were full of joy and happiness, people smiling at each other as in unison. They showed their revulsion for Trump, which to them wasn't revolting, but revolutionary. Trump's hate-filled rhetoric jam-packed with dog whistles that can only be heard by white supremacists encouraged more hate. The problem is hate spreads like wildfires during climate change, destroying everything in its path. And for white supremacists, nothing cleans and cleanses the world quite like the violence of fire. The marches of hatred towards Trump and the marches of hatred for those who love Trump definitely draw the crowds and both sides see politicizing hate and using it as a strategic as well as an organizing tool, taking advantage of our worst, most base feelings, exploiting our resentment towards one another, our bitterness, our antagonism, and loathing for one another. No matter how deeply buried or even never before discovered those feelings were, those emotions will be exploited if it energizes a party's most base base. If hate can be exploited, then suggests we must be vulnerable to our negative feelings being exploited by others, whether it gets us to vote for a certain candidate or buy a certain product, support a certain sports team, or drink a certain beverage. And that hate for the other makes us feel good about ourselves somehow. But what is that good feeling you get when you find something absolutely abhorrent and openly and publicly label it as such? Now, I've met people who thrive on hate. They hate this person or that person or this team or that team or this bar or that bar or these kinds of people or those kinds. And every time for me, it struck a chord of superiority, a desire to feel superior over others or to make them somehow subordinate. Beneath the person preaching the hate, I've seen hate make people feel good because somehow believing some people were inherently worse than them made them feel better about themselves, but it always seemed, at least to me, desperate, a desperate attempt to feel better about themselves by feeling worse about others. It seemed to me that that what they really hated was themselves, and they were, they were taking it out on others. It's not like I'm free of hate. It's an emotion, so I assume every human who has emotions has hate in their emotional inventory. If you've listened to This Is Hell before, you know I hate the cable and network TV news media, and no, hate is not too strong a word, because all it means is to feel intense or passionate dislike. Yet if someone came up to me and said, I hate you, I would suddenly feel really bad. But if they said I had an intense and passionate dislike for you, I wouldn't feel so bad. In fact, that passionate part may have turned me on a little bit because uh, I'm feeling flushed right now. My hate for the national network and cable TV news shows is beyond visceral. For those who have watched me watch the news, my hate is more than visceral. It's visibly vascular as my veins bulge while the news reports on all the deprivations faced by, say, the Venezuelan people while never men mentioning how that's caused by the United States and Western sanctions and refusal to release Venezuelan gold from Western banks. My revulsion rises, turning my stomach as TV news covers wars while refusing to ever show any of the impact of those wars overseas, never showing a U.S. soldier who has been killed as they did during the news when the Vietnam War was covered, leading to quickly rising anti-war sentiment at home and bringing that war to a close far sooner than it might have ended. And it's not only refusing to show U.S. troops who have made, made what the media happily call the 
ultimate sacrifice, despite never actually showing that sacrifice on TV. The TV news also refuses to show the devastating impact of those wars around the world, which I think we're up to nine right now, but that was as of yesterday, so we may have gone to war with more nations by now. I hate the news for not showing the news and instead sanitizing the world for patriotic American viewers' eyes and minds, making things like climate change not seem to be the emergency that they are, the threat that they are to our very survival. And frighteningly, it does make me feel better about myself. That hatred for the news makes me feel superior to the people doing the news, that they are beneath me. And there's no doubt I have a sense of self-loathing, which I've expressed on this show many times. Is my hate toward U.S. national network and cable TV news, my own hate for myself, turned outward and weaponized against others? So let me get up from lying down on the couch, Doc, and admit that, yes, I too hate. And it ain't great. Doesn't make me feel good. Makes me feel horrible. And when I let it guide my thinking or decision-making, the thinking is always corrupted and the decision-making is always, always bad. You can't eradicate hate. You can't end hate. You can't even hate hate without creating more hate. But we don't have to let hate be the guiding force in our lives, whether it's for Trump or anti-Semites or white supremacists or police who torture the innocent into confessions. Hate the hater all you want, but please don't forget to hate the hate too. And that's why this is hell. This week's question from hell is... What will ACAB stand for after we abolish the police? That's all cops are bastards. What will ACAB, all cops are bastards, stand for after we abolish the police? All replies right on air during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a book we are going to be featuring on this week's show, Flint Taylor's The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. Again, the question from hell is, what will ACAB stand for after we abolish the police? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar was right to criticize Israel, but the way she did it may not have been the most effective, and we'll have a deeper conversation about anti-Semitism. White supremacy surrounds us every day, and black people fight it consistently in a million different ways. Chicago has a long history of police violence and fighting against police violence, and we'll discuss police violence of the past, present, and even what the future may hold. And the epitome of white supremacy is the U.S. prison system, which actually encourages racism, racial violence, and the creation of race gangs that, when released, who knew, commit crimes. And during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin weaponizes Purim. We'll also have Rotten History listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been doing on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell, and we want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell and supporting This Is Hell online. We'll also tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of our show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's recent criticism of U.S.-Israeli relations was groundbreaking and has led to a conversation here in the United States about what defines anti-Semitism that I thought I would never, ever hear in the U.S. Here to tell us what Ilhan did right and what she did that was not so right and to go deep into anti-Semitism, 
Barnaby Rain, a doctoral student at Columbia University in modern European political thought, wrote the Guardian article, Ilhan Omar should be more radical about Israel, not less. Welcome to This Is Hell, Barnaby. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Barnaby also had an article in January at Salvage titled Jewophobia, which you can find at salvage.zone. You can follow Barnaby on Twitter at Barnaby Rain. That's R-A-I-N-E. Although U.S. Congresswoman from Minnesota, Ilhan Omar, a Democrat, made her statements on Israel almost a month ago, let me quickly remind listeners about what she said. The Guardian reported on March 2nd, Omar ignited a bipartisan uproar in Washington and at home in Minnesota last month when she supported on Twitter that members of Congress support Israel for money. Many Jewish leaders denounced her remarks as reviving old stereotypes about Jews, money, and power. Then Vox.com reported on March 6th last week, Omar spoke about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on a panel saying, I want to talk about the political influence in this country that says it is okay to push for allegiance to a foreign country. I want to ask, why is it okay for me to talk about the influence of the National Rifle Association or fossil fuel industries or big pharma and not talk about a powerful lobbying group that is influencing policy? To you, is Congressman Omar questioning the political influence of APAC and allegiance toward one uh, toward, toward more than one state is that a is that a good way to criticize US Israeli relations i'm not asking if it is anti-semitic or not like so many immediately immediately yeah. rush to do but is is it a good is, is it a strong critique in your opinion of US Israeli relations well, I don't think it's the best way to approach the argument. So, look, it's true. Um, it's obviously true that uh, APAC is a lobby. And to say that shouldn't be called a slur because APAC says it on its website. Um, it's obviously true, as lots of former APAC lobbyists have written since Ilan Omar made her comments, that APAC's goal is to influence American policy. Um, I mean, if it weren't, it would be strange that lots of people gave their money to APAC and their time to APAC. Obviously, it's a lobbying organization. But the question here is, do we think that ultimate responsibility for American support for Israel lies with, at a relatively superficial level, right, with a group of people who form a lobbying organization um, and try to distort American policy to their own ends? Or do we think that the problem uh, lies in the interest of the American state itself and that the lobby might be important in pushing it uh, to, to be even worse than it otherwise would, that the American state uh, aligns with Israel um, for exactly the reasons that Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leadership said in their condemnation of Ilhan Omar. They said, we support Israel because of shared values and strategic interests. And I think that those things should form the basis of the left critique. Uh, we should ask, what are those shared values? What are those strategic interests? Um, so I, you know, I, I, I don't think Ilhan Omar is a... I think Ilhan Omar is fantastic for having opened up this conversation. And I don't want to read too much into a few tweets. Um, but I think that there's an even better way in which we can mount the opposition, which we can sort of articulate the opposition to American-Israeli relations. Well, let me ask the more big kind of dumb general question that everybody seems to be asking right now. Can one be in opposition to Israeli government policies and not be anti-Semitic? Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, and it's actually it, 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 it's crucial to say that because um, there, is a, there is an extraordinary racism to the denial of that view. So when Chuck Schumer tells APAC, then stands up in the U.S. Senate and says anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, what he's saying is that for Palestinian people 
who were 700,000 of them ethnically cleansed in 1948, driven from their homes, and their descendants now form the biggest refugee population in the world. Many of them still hold the keys from the homes they were forced to flee. When millions of them live under illegal military occupation in the West Bank or under blockade in Gaza or as second and third class citizens in a state that's made abundantly clear it isn't a state for them. Um, what Chuck Schumer says when he says anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism is to erase entirely the legitimacy of people demanding homes and freedom, the right to live in dignity against the state whose very existence is premised on their dispossession. So anti-Semitism is um, a brand of bigotry that, that we should oppose, and we shouldn't think that opposing it requires us to make a sort of awful devil's choice. And, and often sort of people on both sides think this, right, that we must choose between opposing anti-Semitism and opposing Zionism. Both of those things, I think, are anti-racist obligations. So this isn't just a free speech issue. People should have the right to oppose the policies of the state of Israel. I think those of us who see ourselves as part of a radical left, which is an anti-colonial and anti-racist left, have to oppose anti-Semitism as one of the pathologies and paranoias um, that form part of a sick society. And we also have to oppose Zionism as um, uh, since 1948, it meant lots of different things to Jews in 19th and early 20th century Europe. But since 1948, Zionism tied to the Zionist state has been unavoidably, um, to use the word, criminalized uh, in, in one definition of anti-Semitism. It's been a racist endeavor. It's been uh, a, a project to form a, a, a state in a place that already had lots of other people in it, and that required uh, dispossessing those people. So what does viewing anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism, what might that reveal about a person's religious beliefs? What, do, might th what might that reveal about the way in which they view Judaism when they see anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism? Well, it's, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, um, I mean look, there, is, there is a really genuine problem which is difficult uh, and important to grapple with here, which is that um, claims that anti-Zionism are anti-Semitic might sometimes be cynical, right? So they might sometimes be attempts by supporters of the state of Israel to shut down criticism. But they're often not cynical. They're often uh, genuine, um, especially from Jews, many of whom understand Zionism now as integral to their Jewish identity. I mean, I come from a background in which that was very firmly stressed. And so the interesting, challenging, difficult question is the, the, the work of decoupling um, allegiance to a colonial project from a sense of people's religious and cultural identity, where, where Zionism isn't understood, obviously, as allegiance to a colonial project. It's understood as Jewish national self-determination, as freedom after generations of, of, of oppression and murder culminating in the Holocaust. So understanding that presentation of Zionism for lots of Jews um, shouldn't uh, distract, from, shouldn't yeah, take away from the work of uh, of understanding our obligations of solidarity with the Palestinian people, which should mean that we need to hone a politics which is firmly opposed to anti-Semitism and also opposed to Zionism. But I think the view that anti-Zionism uh, is dodgy, um, that, it, that it might be or even is necessarily anti-Semitic, reveals a deep misunderstanding about contemporary anti-Semitism, which really I wrote this article about Ilan Omar, really above all in an attempt to undermine this misunderstanding. So the misunderstanding is, is a view in which anti-Semitism is a problem of excessive radicalism, right? And this is very common now. So um, we sometimes hear that 
some criticism of the state of Israel is, of course, legitimate, but it might spill over into uh, anti-Semitism, as if anti-Semitism is the dark extreme of a more moderate, acceptable criticism of Israel. In Britain, where controversies about anti-Semitism now flare up, a Labour MP, recently member of Parliament, recently said that anti-capitalism is necessarily anti-Semitic, right? So there is this view that anti-elitism, forms of radical politics, their, their nasty extreme form is anti-Semitism. That's directly opposed, I think, to a long-standing view of much 20th century analysis from lots of social theorists, especially of anti-Semitism, which implicitly sees anti-Semitism as a, really a form of conservative thinking, in which anti-Semitism's problem is not excessive radicalism, but too limited radicalism. That is to say, anti-Semitism is an attempt to see the inequalities of contemporary societies and to rescue the image of those societies by making those problems the fault of a small clique of outsiders and not... not uh, ingrained in the structure of hierarchical social relations. So if anti-Semitism is a problem of excessive radicalism, then someone like Ilan Omar has to be called out for uh, criticizing the state of Israel, for criticizing U.S. foreign policy. That, the very language of anti-imperialism is tinged with a nasty echo of something like anti-Semitism. If, on the other hand, as I believe, anti-Semitism is a problem of insufficient radicalism, then when someone like Ilan Omar talks about the problem of the Israel lobby, the response should be, yes, absolutely, you know, APAC are, are, uh, do, do lots of dreadful things. But the way to avoid any echoes of anti-Semitism, and I don't think Ilan Omar was being anti-Semitic, but the way to avoid giving any kind of sucker to anti-Semites and it is actually to radicalize and not to moderate the critique, to understand Israel not as a problem of a small number of people in a small part of the world, to, un to place Israel instead in its context of bigger histories of settler colonialism that put Israel in conversation with what happened in sub-Saharan Africa and indeed in North America as well. So what's the danger in anti-Semitism giving cover for capitalism or giving cover for Zionism? I'm sorry, what's the danger in anti-Semitism giving cover for things like capitalism? What's the danger in substituting anti-Semitism for a critique of capitalism? Well, I think um, um, the, the basic danger is that, um, I mean, there's two things, right? So obviously one is that in response to experiences of oppression, alienation, exploitation, dispossession, it's always more intuitively easy to identify small numbers of individuals, very, very powerful agents, actors, who are responsible for those ills. Um, and the left should understand that progressive, emancipatory responses to oppression are not the only possible responses. Indeed, I think one way of looking at Trumpism is as uh, a reactionary response to, uh, from lots of people to lots of nasty, genuinely nasty experiences. Um, and so the first danger of that is obviously that prejudicial, bigoted responses to oppression have victims who are not themselves the, the, the guilty criminals in, in forging that oppression. So um, if, if people do come to think, and as I say, I don't think this is Ilan Omar's view at all, um, but if, um, uh, if people do come to think, and this is obviously a danger in the United States today, that Jews or Muslims or immigrants, uh, or African-Americans are responsible for their suffering, then, of course, the immediate problem of that is that they target Jews or Muslims or immigrants or African-Americans, um, uh, and, and lots of innocent people get, get hurt. And that's the, obviously, first danger of bigotry. But the second danger is that you miss the real cause, uh, and you don't, derive, you don't come up with a form of politics that is capable of taking on deeply ingrained problems in your society. Instead, you sort of battle around at the margins. I mean, a good example of this, 
Um, if the left now faces a choice between a, a, a structural um, and fundamental criticism of the violence ingrained in colonial societies versus a much more superficial criticism. A good example, to take another lobby, is do we talk about gun violence by saying the problem is the NRA and the problem is a few laws that need to be changed? Or do we talk about gun violence by saying this is a deeply, deeply violent society forged in colonization, in slavery, in napalm, and uh, we need to try to make work out how to make this society a less violent place so that fewer of its kids want to go and shoot up uh, other kids. So I think, you know, which isn't to rule out a conversation about the problem of the NRA, just as talking about Palestinian liberation as a problem of our settler colonial world isn't to rule out a conversation about the problems of APAC, but it's to center the foundational fundamental problems, to foreground those and not to get distracted by the margins. This is why I loved your writing, Barnaby. So uh, just conversely, let's go back to the original question, uh, because you point this out in your writing as well. Uh, can one be pro-Israel and still be anti-Semitic? Can you be both for the state of Israel and still have hostility or prejudice toward those who practice Judaism? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the basic guide is that um, it's no use taking people's opinions about the state of Israel as simple, easy markers for the question, are they anti-Semitic? Because, of course, you can be opposed to Israeli crimes, uh, either because you don't care at all about Palestinians, but just hate Jews and therefore hate the state of Israel, or perhaps you start by caring about Palestinians and then derive anti-Semitic conclusions. You have an analysis of Israeli crimes which says the problem is that they're Jews, rather than, as I would say, the problem is that this is a settler colonial project and a apartheid project. So you can clearly be opposed to the state of Israel and be anti-Semitic. You can also be opposed to the state of Israel out of a consistent anti-racism, which seeks human freedom and dignity for all, and so marches and mobilizes and organizes against anti-Semitism and against the Nakba, the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people, which is at the heart of the Israeli state. Equally, you can be highly supportive of the state of Israel um, for a whole range of reasons. And of course, some of those can be anti-Semitic reasons. So there's a long tradition of support for the state of Israel on the basis of a kind of separatism, which says we don't really want Jews in Europe, for example. We want them uh, crowded in, in Israel. Um, so there's, a, there's an easy anti-Semitic resonance. Um, uh, to support for the state of Israel. There's also an evangelical argument that wants all the Jews in Israel so that, uh, that, that their Messiah will come back and perhaps convert us all. I'm not quite sure if that'll be by our choice or not. Uh, and I don't think those people have much regard for the safety and security of Jews and certainly not much interest in the continuation of Jewish faith. Um, so, yeah, clearly you can, you, can, you can be a supporter or an opponent of the state of Israel. You can be an anti-Semite, um, a philo-Semite, someone who sort of fetishizes and adores Jews, which is, to my mind, a little bit dodgy as well, or just a genuine anti-racist. Um, and it's possible to have any constellation of those, any combination of those positions. A lot of people were very critical of Ilhan Omar, saying that her statements were anti-Semitic. Yet you write, the American state needs no conspiracy or blackmail to encourage it to do damage around the world. It is because Omar's worldview can entertain this very possibility, so rarely contemplated in Washington, that Omar represents an enormously hopeful step in national politics. That critical instinct can enable opposition to the American-Israeli alliance and to anti-Semitism, too. I know that you've already touched on this, but I want to make sure that people understand how Ilhan Omar's uh, comments can lead to a discussion about anti-Semitism. It can actually lead to anti-Semitism, how her, her position can actually lead to anti-Semitism, or ending anti-Semitism. In what way can Ilhan Omar's criticism of U.S.-Israeli relations motivate opposition to anti-Semitism? A fantastic question. So... Um 
I, I think, and this is why, uh, if I could pick one member of the U.S. Congress and make them president tomorrow, uh, it would probably be Ilan Omar. Uh, you know, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, she understands, the, I think, the massive threat of climate change more than most politicians. But the, the basic reason is because she represents this enormously hopeful step um, in terms of opening the door to an argument that the United States of America is not, as I think most people in Washington believe, the solution to many of the world's problems, but is in fact the cause of lots of the world's problems. And the willingness to entertain that possibility that the problem uh, isn't superficial. It's not just uh, a, a mistake of the Trump presidency or the Bush presidency or a few lobbyists. It's a problem that goes back uh, probably to the arrival of Christopher Columbus on these shores. Um, that willingness, I think, is enormously hopeful and allows us to get beyond conspiratorial forms of politics to a much more progressive form of politics. So the way I put it is this. I think there are two paths open to the left right now, uh, a kind of embryonic, nascent, new, new American left. There are two paths open to it in thinking, in, in forming its foreign policy. And this is why this question matters, right? Um, we can think of um, tragedies and injustices as failures to live up to the initial glory of the American promise. Or we can analyze those tragedies and injustices as symptoms, as products of uh, an original violent uh, a set of sins and pathologies deeply rooted in this country's history. And that's a choice between celebrating America and a critique of America that has often been posed by freedom struggles. It was posed by the black freedom struggle in the 1960s, for example. And Ilan Omar interests me so much because I think she represents some of that choice. So on the one hand, and you saw this just after I wrote the article and said I'm optimistic about her, she questioned Elliot Abrams in Congress, uh, Trump's sort of Venezuela uh, coup-mongering official. And she didn't question him as the corrupt henchman of a corrupt president, uh, the symbol that everything's gone wrong in America since November 2016. No, she brought him back to the 1980s, and she asked him whether the interests of the United States of America could prefer genocide to democracy. That's the most shocking question, I think, to ask in the halls of power in Washington. It won't shock many people in Central and South America, for whom the answer to that question is, is pretty obvious. The interests of the United States of America have often been militantly opposed to democracy. So she has opened the door to that kind of radicalism. On the other hand, you also see, under immense pressure, of course, as a member of Congress, a much more conservative argument. You also see her saying that America is a home of democracy and opportunity, and that her criticism of Israel doesn't make her anti-American, that she's opposed to a foreign power um, and, and not to America itself. And so uh, I'm, not say, I'm not trying to sort of deduce from a few tweets a coherent worldview. I'm trying to say there are some tensions at work here, and it's the radical side of Ilan Omar, which doesn't represent the dangerous threat as lots of critics assume, but which in fact represents the possibility of overcoming um, forms of bigoted politics and instead giving us a much more gorgeous and noble tradition of solidarity, universalism, anti-racism that can link um, opposition to the disp continuing dispossession of Native Americans, the carceral state, and uh, the, the, the racist persecution of African-Americans to the struggle of Palestinians against their dispossession. Uh, it doesn't see these problems as, as radically separate. You mentioned two conflations in Zionism and anti-Semitism in your article, Jewophobia, that was at Salvage, and you can find that at salvage.zone. You write, the first connects identity to race to blood, and so reads Semitism as the intrinsic condition of a minority permanently and inaccessible to the rest. Quite aside from anything else, this has nothing to do with Judaism, which has since the... since. Maimonides, I knew I was going to get that wrong, indeed since Ruth, understood uh, itself as a set of social practices constituting an open peoplehood into which converts can enter. So is 
anti-Semitism, racism? Um, uh, it, it's a complicated question, uh, partly because I think making anti-Semitism only racism against Jews um, misses much of its broader uh, problem, which is that it's a brand of conspiratorial thinking, um, a way of misidentifying problems in the social structure and thinking they belong to a tiny elite, which is a kind of conspiratorial sort of meme that you see, for example, I think in the way that Democrats talk about Russia now, which isn't to say they're being anti-Semitic, but they're deploying similar kinds of thinking, which is to say uh, the election of Donald Trump isn't really about deep problems in the American social structure. It's about a few tweets from the Kremlin. Um, so I think there's a big uh, method of a sort of way of doing political thought in, in, in anti-Semitism, which you don't get if you just think it's just racism and it just happens to be targeted at Jews. Um, so that's the first thing. But I think you're asking about this question of whether Jews are a race. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Because I'm trying to de determine if anti-Semitism is racism. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I, so I think for all practical purposes, uh, sort of in everyday political discussion, it's, it's sort of fine to say yes. I mean, um, uh, J Judaism clearly is not like, say, Christianity in the sense of just understanding itself as a religious faith. There are lots and lots of Jews who are, I mean, you know, the way that, 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 that Hitler understood being Jewish was simply having one Jewish grandparent. One of the distinctive features of modern anti-Semitism is that it makes being Jewish into a racial type where Christian medieval anti-Semitism understood Judaism as a religion and Jews were hated above all that and killed Christ in the medieval anti-Semitic understanding or anti-Jewish understanding. Um, anti-Semitism, with its construction of Jews as Semites, as, uh, you know, what it means to be a Semite is to be uh, liminally related to Europe, to be an, an Oriental, to be almost an Arab. This is a moment in the 19th century of lurid Islamophobia. Um, modern anti-Semitism constructs Jews as foreign to Europe, as a racial uh, type. Um, so certainly in the view of much modern late 19th and 20th century anti-Semitism, Jews are understood as a race and hated for being a race. I think things are more complicated. You know, there's a, there's a wide array of different kinds of what I call Jewophobia to say they're not all covered by anti-Semitism. Um, but yeah, certainly I think understanding Jews as a race is common to some Jews uh, who are, don't believe in God maybe, or don't even have much attachment to Jewish culture, but understand themselves as, as part of a racial group. And it's also common certainly uh, to lots of anti-Semites. So... You mentioned, and I teased at the beginning of uh, the show today, uh, that you write about anti-anti-Semitism. What is anti-anti-Semitism, and why can that be dangerous? Well, it's, I mean, you know, we should all be anti-anti-Semites in the sense that we should all be opposed to anti-Semitism. Um, what I'm interested in is this thing I call the new anti-anti-Semitism, which is a slightly yeah, jokey term because... The, the, I'm talking about people who, who uh, describe what they call a new anti-Semitism. And, um, and I kind of, I mean, I hinted at this earlier in talking about different ways to think about um, bigotry against Jews. I think the new anti-anti-Semitism is a view which understands the hatred of Jews as the nasty extreme of anti-elitist politics, of antagonistic politics. And that's why I think it resurges as a moral panic amid concern about the decline of neoliberal technocracy, the return of uh, genuine confrontational politics. Um, the dark side, Tony Blair sort of put it this way the other day, it's the, it's the predictable face of what he calls populism. Um, that, I think, is not especially useful as a way of understanding um, bigotry. Um, and so the new anti-anti-Semites see often in the shadow of all radicalism, the potential for anti-Semitism. I mean, they saw it in opposition to the Iraq war, 
um, I was going to say a decade ago, it's more than that now, isn't it? 16 years ago. Um, they saw it in, uh, they see it in, in, for example, the movement for boycotts, divestment and sanctions against the state of Israel, which should be seen as, as potentially one of the sort of best anti-racist causes of our age. Uh, and as I say, they see it too in, in anti-capitalism. I mean, um, the most extraordinary article in the British press a few weeks ago, a few months ago now, um, pointed to Jeremy Corbyn's plan to raise taxes against the rich as evidence of his anti-Semitism. Now, I think part of the problem with this new anti-anti-Semitism is that it can seem at times that it buys into, it internalizes the anti-Semitic image of Jews. There's an old Yiddish joke, the philo-Semite is the anti-Semite who loves Jews, that you take a picture of the Jew as rich, powerful, um, omnipresent, uh, you know, the image of Rothschild in the past or Soros now, and you really think that that is a representative of what Jews are, and you just find new love for Jews on that basis. You love people who are rich and powerful and, and whatever. And so you haven't actually moved away from this pretty nasty, uh, pretty awful uh, racial, cultural imagery of the world in which Jews mean power. Um, and I think there's the shadow of that in some of this new anti-anti-Semitism, which sees all radicalism as potentially anti-Semitic. And I don't think that's the way to talk about the problem at all. I think it's a, there's a moral panic about anti-Semitism today. I also think there's a real resurgence of anti-Semitism today um, for quite different reasons. And you don't understand those reasons if you think that all radicalism is anti-Semitic. So why is there a surge in anti-Semitism today? Why aren't, you know, people like Steven Pinker and Bill Gates, they all say that things are always getting better, that we're always being less racist, that we're always being less anti-Semitic, that we're uh, always being better off, that poverty is going away, that things are always getting better. So to you, what explains why there is a resurgence in anti-Semitism uh, in Europe and in the United States? Uh, I think it's the, I think we live at the confluence of three conditions. I think, firstly, we live after the end of history, right? So um, uh, when the Berlin Wall came down, some people would say, I think it goes back further than that, to the sort of counter-revolutions against 1968, against the advances of the labor movement and feminism and anti-colonial struggle. Um, we live in a period in which, at the end of history, in which we were told that systematic social transformation had become impossible and market capitalist democracy was the only game in town. We live also after 2008, um, in which um, that model seems to very many people to have floundered. And we live also in a world deeply shaped by 9-11, in which after the end of history, after all antagonistic politics seemed impossible, people were told again, rediscovered that it was possible to hate. It was possible to have antagonistic politics, not along social, political lines, but along cultural lines, right? You could hate those who were backwards, who were, who were different to you culturally. Um, this is the sort of foundational logic of, of the war on terror. So you take those three things together, right? The end of history, you can't change the whole world anymore. Storming the Winter Palace is impossible. Um, abolishing capitalism is obviously impossible. But it is possible to uh, hate people along cultural lines, to form your antagonistic politics along cultural lines. And then you take 2008 and the, the, the demand for a reappearance of anti-elitist class politics after the, 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 the mass foreclosures and redundancies and recession and unemployment. And I think that provides a toxic mix in which the perfect way to understand your anti-elitism is not to say there's a structure, uh, a deeply ingrained system which produces finance capital, um, and it's a system of, of, of commodity exchange and of capitalism. Instead, it's much easier to pick on George Soros. So this is the demons unleashed by the war on terror, in my view, um, demons of hating others and uh, making your problems the, the fault of, an, of small conspiracies of others who hate your way of life. 
That's the demon of the war on terror, and those demons are now coming back home uh, to, to roost against uh, European civilization and, and, and targeting not the structure of that civilization itself, but a small number of, of conspirators. So, you know, supposed conspirators like George Soros. So you can see on this view how the resurgence of geophobia, of what's called anti-Semitism, is not a problem of excessive radicalism. It is, to get back to my earlier point, a problem of insufficient radicalism, the inability to imagine genuine social transformation. You can't really imagine getting rid of the swamp, so you just want to drain the swamp by sending a billionaire there uh, in the hope that he'll be a bit better than the other billionaires. You can't really imagine um, getting rid of capitalist social relations, but you can target George Soros and Goldman Sachs and say they're the problem. Uh, it's, a, it's an overly superficial analysis. It's not a too fundamental analysis. That's, it's too moderate, not too radical. That's a fascinating idea that the war on terror exacerbates uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, you write about the uh, about the Zionism as uh, manifestly failed to keep Jews safe, to combat anti-Semitism. Its failure is predictable, given its whole edifice relies on instantiating the Jew-Gentile binary uh, imagined by anti-Semites. It feeds hatreds, freezes them, needs them. Are you saying that Israel feeds anti-Semitism? Because I know I'm going to get a lot of emails saying that you blame Israel for anti-Semitism. So are you saying that the state of Israel, its actual existence, feeds anti-Semitism? Well, I, I'm saying it relies on anti-Semitism. And um, I obviously don't think that Israel creates anti-Semitism. I mean, that would be historically bizarre, because obviously anti-Semitism long, long, long precedes right. the state of Israel. Um, I think that, um, uh, look, Zionism was never... Um, um, the, the, the sort of uh, yeah, Zionism was never a plan to transcend anti-Semitism. It was never an optimistic view that we could fight an anti-racist struggle to rid the world of anti-Semitism. Zionism was instead the deeply pessimistic view that we would always live in a world of anti-Semitism, and so we just need a fortress to protect us when inevitably the camps reopen. Um, that is, that is, I think, absolutely the logic of Zionism. Um, and it, that's why it's understandable that it was attractive to so many in the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust when optimism, uh, the optimism that had motivated lots of socialists in 1930s Poland seemed to have run aground. Um, today, I think we can say that uh, Zionism uh, entrenches a view, this, this, this culturalism that I'm saying is the foundational problem here, in which Jews have certain interests by virtue of being Jews, Gentiles have different interests by virtue of being Gentiles, and in the paranoid logic of much Zionism, there is an intractable opposition between those things. So it's no surprise that Palestinians hate us. They don't hate us because we've colonized, dispossessed, forced them into exile, maimed and killed them. They hate us because everyone will always hate Jews because they're not Jews. And that's the history of human civilization, the oldest hatred in this sort of very anti-historical, um, essentializing view of anti-Semitism is always with us, and that's why we need a garrison state. Um, that view fails to escape from this miserable logic in which human beings are read as ciphers for cultures and races who have certain interests by virtue of belonging to those cultures and races. The way to bring about a world after anti-Semitism, the way properly to defeat anti-Semitism, is not to further entrench its logic by bunkering down in these binaries. Um, I uh, have certain interests because I'm a Jew and therefore I'll always be opposed to you because you're an Arab. The way to defeat the logic of anti-Semitism is to refuse it, to say um, the real dividing lines that separate us in the world are between those who are interested in the maintenance of power and oppression and alienation exploitation and those who seek a world of human freedom universally free of structures of domination 
I have so many questions left for you, but we are running out of time. So let me just ask you a couple real quick. One of the uh, things that you mentioned is uh, you write that the uh, conversation linking anti-Semitism to familiar racism also links it to other forms of antagonistic conservative politics like homophobia mm-hmm. and fear of Freemasons. All read culture as the ultimate foundation of politics, which gets the relationship precisely the wrong way around. Is the foundation of the problem with the anti-Semitic worldview that it sees culture as the ultimate foundation of politics when, as you argue, politics is in reality the ultimate foundation of culture? Why is that difference so important? How does it make one view the world differently? Yeah, that, that, that is absolutely the crucial question. I mean, because, you know, I've talked about anti-Semitism as insufficient radicalism, which thinks that small numbers of individuals are, prob- are, are responsible for the world's problems, not big social structures. I disagree, though, with one view of anti-Semitism um, on the left, people like Moshe Stone, uh, Werner Bonefeld, um, who, who sort of stop there, right? Who say anti-Semitism is that form of anti-capitalism, which doesn't understand the structural problems of, of capitalism. I think it's a useful, very, very useful starting point. But it misses out the crucial centrality of culture. Anti-Semitism doesn't just say a small number of individuals are responsible for your problems. It says the reason they're responsible for your problems is because of their race or their culture or their ethnicity. Um, it's because of those facts about their existence. And yes, I think this is a crucial, crucial difference, which clarifies why the radical left is in the best position to fight anti-Semitism. Because especially in this age of the war on terror, it's only really the radical left that refuses a view that we have certain interests, political interests, by virtue of our essential intractable cultures. It's only really the radical left that is capable of saying, and, you know, I mentioned the black freedom struggle earlier as an amazing moment in American history where, uh, in the 20th century, where this was made possible. People like James Baldwin were the sort of most articulate exponents of this view, that it's possible to disentangle people's deep imbrication in violence and nastiness and oppression that, for example, marks white America, because those things aren't in the blood of white America. They're the product of politics. They're the product of experiences of colonization and power and slavery. Um, And we can take those apart, those cultures, if we take apart the politics that produce them and replace them with a politics of freedom and equality uh, and respect for one another. So um, so the the, the basic difference between the anti-Semitic worldview and the worldview of the radical left that's properly understood, the radical left, is that in the view of the anti-Semitic worldview, just like in the view of those who launched the war on terror, for example, though frequently, you know, those who launched the war on terror march in Paris against anti-Semitism, the, the sort of core similarity is a view that um, there, there are cultural conflicts in the world. We are born, or perhaps we acquire at some point in life, but they are practically ineradicable cultures. And those cultures then determine how we behave. Um, uh, culture is extremely powerful, but the hope of the radical left is that uh, even very violent and nasty cultures can be torn down um, because uh, the basic division in the world is not between people who are Jewish or Gentile, people who are Afghan and American, um, but between uh, people who have power and people who don't. So you mentioned this in your article, and I just want you to make, uh, wanted to make sure that you would uh, talk about it on today's show. Why do you believe Semitic cosmopolitanism can overcome anti-Semitism better than Zionism. Yeah, well, so, uh, yeah, it ties into what we've been talking about. Um, So um, what I said is often on the left, it's been assumed that the answer to anti-Semitism is a kind of assimilationism, which says, let's just flatten all our differences. 
and rejecting, or I'll say cultural differences, rejecting culturalism, political culturalism, means rejecting a view that our cultural uh, commitments, our cultural particularities, need determine our politics and need, need forged lines of political antagonism so that my culture makes me opposed to you because you have a different culture. Um, I like hamburgers and french fries. You like, I don't know, kebabs, and so that puts us in opposition to each other. Um, Semitic cosmopolitanism, what I, this sort of maybe slightly clunky term that I coined in the article, is just to say um, there's something really gorgeous and valuable about some of the, many of the cultural traditions uh, that went into the making, the construction of modern Jewry. Um, that Semitism, this thing that anti-Semites hate, was in the late 19th century understood as the condition of being on the margins of Europe, this sort of border condition of not fully fitting within European society, uh, taking much of its beauties and contributing many of its beauties. You know, it was Karl Marx who once wrote, if Jews are an eyesore, they're the most incredible, wonderful eyesore to have uh, um, for European society, um, contributing many of its beauties, but never being fully a part of it, always existing on its margins. That tradition, that anti-Semitic way of understanding uh, uh, Jews, I think should be embraced as an opening for solidarity among lots of other peoples at the borders of Europe. Um, it may not be how lots of it isn't how lots of Jews understand Judaism today, but it's deeply written into traditions of exile and um, and oppression that, that we say in the in the Seder service at the start of Passover that, that we shouldn't mistreat strangers for we were once strangers in others' land. That tradition of solidarity of taking from our particular experience of persecution and generalizing from it, not the defensive paranoid reaction that says, I've been persecuted, so I must defend myself, but I've been persecuted, so I understand others who are persecuted. This is a very, very long-standing Jewish tradition. The great Isaac Deutscher, his essay, The Non-Jewish Jew, writes about this as a, as a great Jewish tradition. The Jewish left has for centuries embodied this tradition. Universalism that emerges out of the particular, um, which I think goes back even to Jewish theology and to the view that the chosen people are not a master race, but have a vocation, an obligation to bring about the Messiah, to bring about universal salvation. Now, whether you believe for everyone in the world, now, whether you believe in God and in, the, in Jewish theology or not, I think there's a very, very gorgeous political tradition there. So this is to say, you don't have to be a political culturalist. You don't have to say, I'm a Jew and therefore I'm only loyal to other Jews. Uh, which I think is the dreadful mistake of, of, of ultimately of Zionism. You can, but you don't have to reject culture either and say we must all assimilate and be the same. You can say, look, in Jewish tradition, there's this wonderful particular tradition that we can take, Semitic tradition, and use it to forge a brand of cosmopolitanism, a way of living together uh, while adoring the very, very different cultures and traditions that different people have and drawing from them um, uh, different good things that can help us to, to live together. We have been speaking with Barnaby Rain. He is a doctoral student at Columbia University in modern European, modern European political thought. He wrote the Guardian article, Ilhan Omar Should Be More Radical About Israel, Not Less. He also had an article in uh, January at Salvage titled Jewophobia, which you can find at salvage.zone. And I strongly suggest you check out both of these articles. Jewophobia is really, really amazing. Follow Barnaby on Twitter at Barnaby Rain. That's R A I N E. One last question for you, Barnaby. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, accusing others of anti Semitism serves the same social function as anti Semitism itself. Namely, it diverts attention from the sickness within Christian civilization. What is the sickness within Christian civilization? Oh, fantastic. Uh, one of the most enormous differences between the new anti-antisemitism and traditions 
of analysing anti-Semitism in the, 20, in the 19th and 20th centuries, critical analyses of anti-Semitism, is that those old traditions began from the premise that anti-Semitism was uh, created by the civilization in which it was nested, um, that there were various features of this civilization which produced pathologies, sicknesses like anti-Semitism, manias, ways of misunderstanding the social world. The new anti-anti-Semitism, on the other hand, makes anti-Semitism the sickness of others, the barbarians, the anti-Zionists, the Muslims, whoever it is, the anti-capitalists, um, their hatred for our civilization is why they are anti-Semitic. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that's what I meant. So it's to say, um, you know, if you're Donald Trump, I mean, this is the, it, it's reached, we're through the looking glass now. I mean, it's reached the laughable irony where Kevin McCarthy, uh, GOP uh, majority leader, can, um, uh, can send out a tweet shortly after a bomb is sent to George Soros' house, a sort of anti-Semitic tweet about George Soros. And then he can get on his high horse and condemn Ilan Omar when Trump, um, who initially refuses to denounce David Duke, can condemn Ilan Omar for her supported racism. That is really the comical extreme of this point I'm making. It's become so unsubtle, so in your face now, that um, treating anti-Semitism as the problem of barbarian others, um, it's no coincidence that Ilan Omar is a Muslim woman and is being, uh, this allegation is being launched against her. Um, it is really uh, a, an awfully retrograde move, and the left certainly used to understand, and I hope still does, that anti-Semitism is a problem uh, produced by uh, the horrors of the society in which we live. Barnaby, external to it. I really appreciate you being on our show this week. This is a fascinating conversation. Your writing is amazing. And again, I just want to stress to everybody, they should definitely check out. Sure, check out that you're writing at The Guardian about Ilhan Omar, but your longer writing, uh, Jewophobia, that was at Salvage this, or in January, really is amazing. So thank you so much for being on our show and uh, look forward to us bothering you in the future to having you back on. Thank you so much for having me. Been right, great. Take care. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. White supremacy encircles us. It traps us. It limits not only the freedom of black people, but of all people. It is a hate-filled belief that distracts the believer from the real systemic causes of their problems, and it undermines is even a threat to democracy, which explains why, yes, white supremacists are opposed to democracy. Keep that in mind next time you see a rally like we had a few years ago. Whenever you see white supremacists on TV, they are against democracy. We'll go from an interview about the horrors of anti-Semitism to the disgusting nature of white supremacy when we talk to Akiba Solomon and Kenria Rankin, co-authors of How We Fight White Supremacy, a field guide to black resistance, a collection of essays that features past This Is Hell guests, including Adrian Marie Brown, and Robin D.G. Kelly. Get the That Was Hell email newsletter free every Monday. Go to thisishell.com. Sign up right now. This is Hell in your inbox every Monday morning. Sign up for the That Was Hell email newsletter, newsletter or the newsletter, either one, and start every week listening to This Is Hell. Maybe you're enjoying your favorite beverage in your new stainless steel This Is Hell coffee mug, completely new and redesigned, or you're browsing through a book we gave you for dropping by This Is Hell office hours on Wednesday night. Suddenly, you click on your inbox, and just like that, you've got links to this week's entire This Is Hell all the separate interviews and correspondence reports organized and ready for your listening and sharing pleasure. Sign up for the That Was Hell email newsletter at thisishell.com and start your week by listening to and sharing This Is Hell. And if you want to see the completely, newly redesigned 
stainless steel coffee mug, our newly redesigned logo that's on our t-shirt, our coffee mug, and our tote bag. Go to thisishell.com and click on support to see all of our stuff. If you want to hear This Is Hell over the air on your local radio station, assuming you still have one, and I'm doubting that you do, and impose our content upon your neighbors, email us your local radio station's call letters to chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com, and some some of you are already suggesting local stations for us to include in our burgeoning, not the media, radio network. Again, if you want to hear us on your favorite local station, email us the call letters to chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com, or better yet, email your local station and tell them why your source for anti-social media is this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1931, 88 years ago, in Lahore, India, the atheist socialist revolutionary Bhagat Singh was hanged by British officials along with Shivaram Rajguru and Sukhdev Thapar, two of his colleagues in the Indian independence movement. Because when you are a socialist, an atheist, and crazy for independence, of course, the British Empire will definitely hang you. Born to a Sikh family in Punjab, Bhagat Singh had been involved in Mahatma Gandhi's organized resistance since his early teens, but after repeated brutal attacks by British police on unarmed villagers, he had become dissatisfied with Gandhi's insistence on nonviolence. Bhagat Singh had joined the Young Revolutionary Movement, all in capital letters, calling for violent overthrow of the British in India, and quickly emerged as a natural leader within several revolutionary organizations while also writing prolifically for newspapers and political journals. I'm starting to wonder exactly what role violence played in India's independence movement, which is always simplified, boiled down to something that was completely nonviolent. In 1928, after a beating by British police brought on the death of another revolutionary leader, Singh led a conspiracy to avenge it by assassinating the British police superintendent, but the conspirators mistakenly killed a different officer named John Saunders, because killing the wrong person happens a lot more than you think during assassination conspiracies. Singh eluded the police long enough to take part in a non-lethal bombing of India's legislative chamber where he and his comrades Rajguru and Thakar were arrested. Investigators connected the three to the mistaken killing of the police officer Saunders and they were all sentenced to death. Singh led a hunger strike in prison. The hanging was rescheduled on short notice. It took place a day early and Singh died at the age of 23. And let's see, at 23, I was living in an illegal and unsafe apartment in the basement of a house with only one narrow staircase as a means of escape in case of fire. An illegal apartment that I shared a wall with another illegal apartment that was nothing more than a thin piece of plywood paneling veneer. And the person on the other side of the wall was an undocumented immigrant sharing a bathroom that nobody ever cleaned since the bathroom was added decades earlier, all in a house run by a born-again Christian pro-life activist landlord who has a scumbag landlord, was not acting very Christian at all. So when I was 23, I was learning about the hypocrisy of the Christian right anti-choice crowd. Bhagat Singh was running an independence movement to overthrow imperial rule. In subsequent years, Bhagat Singh was acclaimed as a heroic martyr of India's independence struggle. In subsequent years, I was thankfully not acclaimed as a martyr of any independence struggle. 
So I got that going for me. In Rotten History, 1933, 86 years ago in Berlin, the bicameral German legislature passed the Enabling Act, which effectively gave German Chancellor Adolf Hitler the capacity to rule without legislative involvement. And if there is anyone in the history of the world that you do not want to enable, it's freaking Hitler. I mean, enable me all you want. Nothing bad is going to happen. But Hitler? That's another story. Not that I'm comparing myself to Hitler, because that's probably not a good way to increase our listening audience. In fact, the first broadcasting I, broadcasting class I ever had, Mr. Hunley told me, Mertz, one thing you got to remember, on air, never compare yourself to Hitler. The passing of the Enabling Act followed a decree issued the previous month suspending civil liberties after the burning of the Reichstag, the German legislative building, and Act Hitler and his Nazi party had blamed on German communists. All Reichstag deputies from the Communist Party had been arrested, along with some from the Social Democrat, Democratic Party. Paramilitary SA and SS thugs were Gestapo thugs were brought in to intimidate the remaining legislators during final voting of the Enabling Act. In that vote, 444 deputies approved the Enabling Act with only 94 against, all of whom were from the Social Democrat Party. In subsequent months, all political parties other than the Nazis would be banned, thus completing the transformation of Germany into a one-party dictatorship that would menace the world for 12 years. While there is no eyewitness evidence that the Nazis were actually the ones who set the Reichstag on fire and they blamed it on the communists, uh, historians agree that they were that Nazis were likely involved. They also agree that one lone communist unemployed Dutch construction worker named Marinus van der Lube, who was arrested on the scene and later executed for the crime, could have burned the Reichstag down by himself. So maybe the Nazis set the fire that led to rising fear among the population that ushered the Nazis to power. Which reminds me, white supremacists are dicks. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. This week's question from Hell is, what will ACAB, A-C-A-B, all cops are bastards, stand for after we abolish the police? What will all cops are bastards, A-C-A-B, stand for after we abolish the police? All replies read on air during the next week's next hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a book we are about to feature on this week's show and just about an hour from now, 50 minutes from now, Flint Taylor's The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. Again, the question from Mel is, what will ACAB stand for after we abolish the police? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the next hour to see if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, white supremacy surrounds us every day, and black people fight it consistently in a million different ways. Chicago has a long history of police violence and fighting against police violence, and we'll discuss police violence of the past, present, and even what the future may hold. And the epitome of white supremacy is the U.S. prison system, which actually encourages racism, racial violence, and the creation of race gangs that, when released, who knew, actually go out and commit crimes. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin weaponizes Purim. We'll also have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we're, we've been up to on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, the question from Al, we want to thank some listeners for supporting the show online, for sharing the show online. We'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly, and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. 
White supremacy is around us, surrounding us, stifling our political imagination, and being fought every day in a million different ways. Here to tell us about that fight, we are very, very honored to have with us Akiba Solomon and Kenria Rankin. They are co-authors of How We Fight White Supremacy, a field guide to black resistance, a collection of essays and interviews that features past This Is Hell guests Adrian Marie Brown and Robin D.G. Kelly. First, hello to you, Akiba. Welcome to This Is Hell. Thank you. Hi, Chuck. How are you? Good. Your voice sounds great on the phone. And Kenria, how are you doing? I'm great. Great how to are you? great to have you on the show. Akiba is the senior editorial director of Color Lines and a uh, National Association of Black Journalists award-winning journalist and editor. And Kenria is an award-winning author, journalist, editorial consultant, and the editorial director at Color Lines. Let's start with you, Akiba. You write there are there was a time when we were young, scrappy, and hungry. When fighting for justice brought to mind picket signs, linked arms, and raised fists as our daily response. Responsibilities multiply, and the folks who want to push liberty even further beyond our outstretched fingertips grab more unchecked power. It's harder to make it to the front lines, but we also know that that's not the only way to fight. So, Akiba, are picket signs, linked arms, and raised fists necessarily the best way to fight for social justice and liberty? How effective are picket signs, linked arms, and raised fists? How effective are the more traditional ways that people think of protest when it comes to fighting white supremacy? Well, I think it's important to acknowledge that these are tools. So they are things that you can use as part of a greater strategy. Um, And it's really important to understand, too, that, yes, you definitely need traditional activism to raise awareness, to bring people together, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they can't, it can't stop there. And I think that's where the confusion comes with people when they say, well, you know, if we march, it doesn't make a difference. Well, it does make a difference. It just doesn't make all the difference. That's a really good point because we have talked with uh, Black Lives Matter co-founder Michael White on our show, and Micah insists that this age of protest, they, that they've, bum- they've become so uh, ineffective that it's almost not worth doing. So, Kenria, are picket signs, linked arms, and raised fists obsolete? Uh, have we become desensitized to them? Do they still play an important role in the fight for racial justice, or should we move on because they're even a distraction from the further activism that needs to be done outside of just protest? Well, I think, you know, as Akiba said, that it really is one of the tools in the box. And that's really the point of the book is that we look at, you know, wow, that's one mode and it has a really specific purpose and it mobilizes people. It makes for good TV. It lets people know what's going on. You know, those actions also live alongside things like, you know, starting businesses that empower that empower black people and other people of color. Um, humor, which is one of the things we have an entire chapter um, in the book about. And I don't think that, you know, we get desensitized. I think, honestly, it really just motivates us when we see other people out there you know, in some cases, putting their very lives on the line in order to fight for something that they really believe in, it lets us know that that's something that we can do too. And I made a mistake. I, didn't, I meant uh, Mike White is the co-founder of Occupy, not Black Lives Matter. I was looking at my script okay. and I saw the words Black <laughs> yeah, Lives Matter, and I was like, like huh? I know exactly. I was, I was like, I knew that was wrong. Uh, so let me just follow up on that. Akiba uh, Kenria was just talking about how you have a whole chapter on humor. Uh, you mentioned that. African-Americans, the black culture often embraces gallows humor. Akiba, what should that reveal to to us? What does that reveal to you 
about black culture when it so embraces gallows humor? Well, I mean, I think there's always a level of tricksterism within black culture because we were, you know, we had to subvert our feelings for so long and we had to push them down. And so humor is a way, um, I think, to express yourself um, sometimes in a way that the person oppressing you might not quite get. Um, They know they're being made fun of, but they can't tell you that how you made fun of them. And so I think, you know, it's a subversive way for us to respond to being silenced um, via white supremacy. Well, so, Kenria, do you think then that humor is uh, is humor liberating? And to what degree does humor from an African-American comedian, from a black comedian, to what degree does that actually lead to the uh, uh, challenge white supremacy? Does Does actually just laughing challenge white supremacy? Sure. So first, yes, I do think that humor is liberating. I mean, I I don't know about you, but I've definitely had days where everything about them really pressed me down, right? Made me really feel awful. And a lot of that is, as a black woman navigating in this world, a lot of that is brought on by white supremacy. But for the hour that I'm sitting in front of, you know, the TV, watching a special that feels completely catered toward me and talks about the things that, you know, make me feel oppressed in a humorous way, I feel a little better. I feel a little freer. I'm not thinking about those things in terms of the negative impact that they have on me. But as Akiba said, I'm laughing at the perpetrator. And I think that there is liberation to be found in there. And then I think the other part of it is that, you know, it gives us a way, as Kiva said, to talk about the things that we can't necessarily say out loud. But just as, you know, any other ism really can live in the shadows if we act like it doesn't exist, this is the same thing. And when we talk about these things, even if we're talking about them in a humorous way, we're shedding light into the corners of white supremacy and bringing it to, you know, the forefront and making people think about it. Because the reality is most people don't like to think about white supremacy as a concept or as a thing that actually acts on their life. And overall, you know, what we're trying to do is, you know, let folks know, hey, this is the thing, and these are the ways that people are fighting towards it. And yeah, humor is one of those ways. Akiba and Kenria, I only had one question about humor, but I'm telling you this is such a fascinating conversation for me because one of the things that I try to do is not be some sort of automaton and not have, you know, close out certain emotions during uh, when I'm doing the radio show and have this Mm. fake seriousness. So humor is really important to me because I I do think it's... Well, let me ask you, uh, Akiba, uh, is humor then more revolutionary, more of a revolutionary act for African-Americans, for black comedians than it is for white people. I'm trying to make sure that white people understand how revolutionary humor can be. That's an interesting question. I mean, first, I just want to flag that you said earlier that white supremacists were dicks and we were laughing about that. Yeah, we were. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of nice. So they're so they're they're all named Richard. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I don't I don't want to make a sort of blanket statements about one form of humor being more revolution than the other, revolutionary than the other. But what I will say is that when you have less power and you use a tool that empowers you, then it has a certain weight that maybe people with more power, you know. Well, shouldn't have, I should say. Um, But I also think it's important for us to understand that there are brands of humor 
that can be really empowering. And then there can be brands of humor, um, I'll mm-hmm. say in particular white humor, that are harmful. So the sort of white humor that is casual racism or the kind of white humor that uh, masquerades as self-deprecating when really it's about asserting supremacy. Those kinds of humor, I think, are a real challenge. Um, also, sort of fake irony is a challenge that I've seen recently. So, you know, again, I don't want to make blanket statements about what's more revolutionary than, you know, the other. But I do want to say that there are forms of um, comedy today in particular that are really harmful but don't appear to be. Kenria, you and Akiba write, as we spend our days writing and editing stories about racial justice and injustice for color lines, we are increasingly struck by all the ways black people combat the physical and emotional wages of the system of white supremacy. Just as there are millions of us fighting, there are millions of ways to land blows. Kenria, are these ways of fighting white supremacy actually recognized as ways of fighting white supremacy? Are these tactics Hmm. happening around all of us, no matter our race, all of the time, but only some of us may actually recognize these tactics as fighting white supremacy? That's a great question. And I think that's really what led us to work on this book. You know, so often people really do only think about, you know, the organizers who they may read about or the activists who are out on the front lines who are in all those, you know, gorgeous TV, the pictures we were talking about earlier. Um, but there are so many ways that may kind of fly under the radar. And we spend a lot of time, obviously, in the book looking at them. And the book is grouped around 10 different chapters, and each of them looks at different modes of fighting. And then within each chapter, we talk to people who are doing it in a lot of different ways. So there's one chapter called I Make Money Moves. And in that particular chapter, we look at people who are entrepreneurs, who are creating businesses that put money into the black community and employ black folks. We look at um, this particular organization called Abolition that has an app that lets people donate their spare change to help bail out uh, folks who are awaiting trial but don't have the money to be able to get themselves out of jail. We have um, an organization that that raises political funds for progressive candidates um, who are Black. Then we have a chapter where we look at religion. It's called God is Good All the Time. And, you know, while I, I think that um, there's a, a long and varied relationship that religion has with the idea of fighting white supremacy right at first when, you know, the enslaved Africans were brought into this country. Christianity was used in order to kind of quell any type of, uh, you know, rebellion. But as time has gone on, you know, we've seen decades of leaders who come out of the church who have been called to be able to lead African-Americans out of, you know, oppression. And I think it's really important to us, for us all to, you know, be able to see all the different ways that folks are fighting around us, because as you said, it's happening, you know, whether we're looking or not. But even more importantly, I think that when we see the ways that other people are fighting that we may not have necessarily connected with that struggle, it makes it easier for us to find our own modes of fighting. Akiba. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah, I just wanted to add on. I mean, I I think also um, it's important to understand that not everybody is an extrovert. Not everybody makes great speeches. Not everybody writes soaring prose. But that doesn't mean that you're not an activist. Um, And a lot of times, particularly now on social media, I see a lot of frustrated Black folks who say, you know, this is why we can't get ahead or nobody's doing anything about this. And so that, for me, was part of why I wanted to be a part of this book, because we see every day 
that Black people are doing things. It's just because they may not be framed that way, particularly through the lens of a white supremacist media, it looks like to some people we're not doing anything, quote unquote. But again, we do things every day, all day. That's that's what the book is about. But let me just follow up on that, Akiba. So when the media does ignore, does not, you know, put a, a focus on the kind of black activism that is happening today that is actually challenging white supremacy, what is the impact on black activism? Does that undermine black activism? Does that lead black people to believe, hey, maybe we aren't doing anything? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'll answer that with something that my father always told me, which is that one of the quickest ways that uh, white supremacists were able to undermine the civil rights and the black power movement was to stop reporting on all of the rebellions that were happening all over the country. And so, you know, there was a summer or two where every city looked like it was on fire and it was, you know, an emergency and it really spoke with urgency to how people not only were being were being treated, but how they felt about it and the power that they were going to exert that they had. And so by disappearing that, essentially, you can make it look like nobody's doing anything or you can make it look like, well, a couple of years ago we were on, you know, we were on fire and now we're just sitting around. And that's just, you know, change happens on a continuum. But I do think, yes, the disappearing of a particular kind of Black struggle via media is a really powerful tool of white supremacy because it distorts history and it distorts the context in which people are acting. Kenria, you and Akiba write that the fact is white supremacy defines our current reality. It is not merely a belief that to be white is to be better. It is a political, cultural and economic system premised on the subjugation of people who are not white. So, Kenria, I know this is a weird question to ask, but how aware are white people of white supremacy? Is white supremacy unconsciously reinforced on a regular daily, even minute by minute basis? Is it is is it something more than unintended consequences? Well, first, I will say that I am not white, so it is hard for me to answer. (laughs) That's why I that's why I premised it that way. You'll have to tell me. Um, But the second part of that, you know, is it around us and is it being, you know, perpetuated without, you know, folks knowing? I I mean, I think every day. Absolutely. You know, every time somebody exerts, you know, a white person exerts the privilege that they have by virtue of being a white person, they are contributing to this system that says that, you know, they deserve more, that they, you know, belong in a higher position at work, that they uh, should be able to step in front of you in the line at the airport, which is something that so many people experience where it's as if we're invisible, um, you know, that they deserve the, the, the biggest pancake. Like, yeah, they can right, call the police on you for barbecuing. Exactly. I mean, and, and you know, I, I think that very often we hear people, uh, white people, rationalize, you know, the, the decisions that they make, or very often I think they go over their heads and they may not understand that they're contributing to it. But the reality is that they're doing it every day. And even if they don't realize that they're dealing the blows, we're feeling them. You know, about 15 years ago, I had kind of an epiphany. I was waiting for a train up here in Evanston, which is a predominantly white, well-off uh, suburb. And I was talking to a black gentleman, a young guy, who told me that uh, he was like, man, I really love it up here. I've never been to Evanston before. And I'm like, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Englewood on the south side. And he told me, uh, he was like, yeah, I really love it here. Do you know, you can sit in your backyard and drink a beer and not get arrested. 
And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, dude, you can't do that on the south side. The cops will arrest you being on your own property drinking a beer. He goes, I love it here. It's great. <laughs> it's just That's the kind of thing. I wish that more people would have that kind of realization. You write, uh, Kenria, um, I mean, Akiba, you write, uh, white supremacy is the voice in our collective hearts that says it's, it makes civilized sense that one group of people gets to annihilate, enslave, incarcerate, brainwash, torture, sterilize, breed, and terrorize other people. White supremacy establishes, upholds, and normalizes hierarchy based on the premise that the less black you are, the closer you are to God. Akiba, it, again, it makes civilized sense, but how can it make civilized sense? We've had many guests on our show who have said that racism is caused by capitalism. Is that how racism makes civilized sense within the context of making money of capitalism? I mean, yes, I think capitalism is definitely a driver and a symptom of white supremacy. But I also think that, you know, even if we were under a socialist or communist or another kind of economic system, if we didn't address white supremacy very specifically, then we would be in the same position. So I definitely think, you know, the the idea of class struggle and the idea of, um, you know, basically money over everything and creating systems in which you compromise, you know, people, the earth, animals, other living beings is a, is a white supremacist act. But I don't think it ends there. And I don't think we can end the conversation there because we're going to end up in the same position. Kenria, you and Akiba, right? We live in a country where law enforcement officers kill black children and call them thugs. The mainstream media calls white supremacists the alt-right and referencing the African-Americans in discussions about urban crime is a sufficient credential to put a third-rate reality television personality in the White House. So, uh, Kenria, what's wrong with using the word thug? And what's particularly wrong with the police using the word thug? Because I've heard people who are not police use the word thug, and that's always kind of disappointed me. So what's wrong with using the word thug? Well, first of all, (laughs) I mean, it's coded language, right? We all know what folks mean when they say thugs. And what it really comes down to is dehumanizing people. At the point that you call a child a thug instead of acknowledging that he is 13 years old, you are saying that this person does not deserve the same dignity and respect as the 13-year-old who looks like you or lives in your home. And when it's police that are doing it, someone who, you know, an officer who has a gun, who has the authority to take away someone's freedom, it is, at its core, you know, dangerous not just problematic, but dangerous and deadly. And, you know, as y'all have seen in Chicago, the the consequences of that are dire, not just on a personal level, but at the city level and nationally. You know, uh, Akiba, that reminds me that on our show last month, we spoke with, uh, we talked to scholar and writer Damaris uh, B. Hill, author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. Damaris writes about the long and rarely acknowledged American presumption that black people are less than human. Damaris argues that people are fighting for their humanity. If white supremacy is a threat to black humanity, why is Black Lives Matter a, a struggle for humanity? Why is that seen as a threat to humanity of others? Because 
uh, Ken Rio was just talking about how uh, about the lack of humanity that people have. Damaris talks about, or that uh, African Americans have been given. Damaris talks about this lack of humanity that is the uh, unacknowledged uh, thing that people know here in the United States. So if white supremacy is a threat to black humanity, why is Black Lives Matter a struggle for humanity seen as a threat to the humanity of others? Well, I mean, I, I think I think again, that's a that's generally a question for folks who believe that Black Lives Matter means that other lives don't matter. But I, I think I think one issue around this is the idea that Black people might assert our humanity and our worth, um, and and you know assert the fact that we should not be subjugated is an insult to a lot of people because they really do believe that they are superior at the core. And so it's a form of resistance and they don't like it. But I also think there's this hypocrisy um, within white supremacy and the sort of gaslighting within white supremacy in which it vilifies anything you do to speak against it. So, you know, if, if you say Black Lives Matter, then people say, well, you're trying to say I don't matter. If you say, you know, I don't know, I, I can't even figure out what the opposite is but the I mean it's, to me it's like a it's a turn of phrase and it's sort of a it's sort of a trick um and it's a defense that really doesn't hold any water and for folks who continue to say that even though folks have in black lives matter and otherwise have explained what the context is it's just another way to like delay or avoid facing what's really happening Kenria, you too write that as people fighting for social justice, we honor the principles of democracy at every turn, even when the people charged with implementing those principles don't honor us. This ain't new to us. Kenria, what explains why white supremacy exists within democracy? What does it say to you about white supremacy? And what does it say about the democracy we have here in the United States when the two coexist, despite the founding documents of our American democracy, the Declaration of Independence states all men are created equal. So what explains why white supremacy exists within this democracy? Well, I think that white supremacy exists within this democracy because we are uh, hierarchical by nature, right? And as we wrote, you know, that is, really at the key, the core is that people like white people, especially cisgender white men, like to feel like they're at the top of a hierarchy and they will bend in in whatever system they're in um, when they are not folks who are actively fighting, you know, this system in order to put themselves at the top of that. And, you know, sure, it says all men are created equal, but let's be clear that they did not consider black people to be human, to go back to the conversation we're having about humanity. And so we weren't included in that to begin with. It never included women. It never included black people with any gender identity. It never included any of the rest of us. And so it makes total sense to me that this system would not just live alongside white supremacy, but be totally entwined with it because it started there. Akiba, you write that your book is a curated, multidisciplinary collection that serves as a showcase for some of our most powerful thinkers and doers. And like I said, your book uh, also has features including uh, those who have been, people have been on our show in the past, like Robin D.G. Kelly and Adrian Marie Brown. Uh, You write that it starts in the middle of a black-ass conversation. You won't find any explanatory commas about our cultural mores here. Akiba, what do you mean by explanatory commas? Well, the explanatory commas when you say, 
um, you know, don't piss on me and tell me it's raining, comma, which means don't try to fool me. Like that, <laughs> that takes away from the sort of poetry of the language. And it also forces you to be a translator to folks who are outside of your culture. This isn't to exclude other people, but as we write, it starts in the middle of a Black-ass conversation. This book is for Black folks. Um, other folks can certainly learn and buy it and all of that, but this is about us speaking to one another, and this is about us being able to express ourselves freely without explaining every five minutes what we're talking about. <laughs> I love that. Uh, we were talking to Michael Denzel Smith uh, on the show back in December, and he was telling us how it seems like every conversation that you have on race within the mainstream media, the first thing you have to do is explain to the white gatekeepers that racism actually exists, and they, you have to go through the tragedy right. porn at the very beginning, and then you never actually right. get to the problems that are inherent within racism. Uh, Kenria, um, uh, as... Uh, Akiba was just saying uh, that this is a book that was written with black people in mind. Kenria, to what degree can white people fight white supremacy? Uh, so we knew you were going to ask this question because everyone does. I, I knew it. Are, <laughs> I think that there are three main things that, that white people should keep in mind if they want to be in this fight. And they obviously should be in this fight. Um, the first is that they should not ask black or other people of color to do emotional or any other labor for them. So whether that be research or explaining why the city is upset because Laquan McDonald was killed, don't ask. Do it yourself. The other thing is to be courageous, whether they're holding themselves or the other white people around them accountable for the ways that they hold up the system. They need to have courage when they're confronting the things that may make them uncomfortable that they discover when they do that. And then the other thing that we always tell people is that, you know, it's really key to be to be in step with other white people who want to do the you know work in this fight. And so we often recommend that folks look at Surge, which is showing up for racial justice, which organizes white people in cities around the country to fight from their angle. Akiba, you write, the reality is this, if we don't make time to close our eyes, breathe deeply, push beyond the binds we're in and visualize a day where when, you know, white supremacists don't exist, we can never truly be free. We've had a lot of guests talk on our show about our limited political imagination under neoliberalism and the belief that there is no alternative. Is the free, freedom imagination or imaginary in any way limited as well by neoliberalism? Does, liberal, does neoliberalism change the way that black people see liberation? That's an interesting question. I, I mean, I think, I, I think you have to allow yourself to imagine something that isn't in front of you. Um, and that's so important, in part because a lot of times things have occurred in history that we know nothing about. You know, so folks will say, you know, we were never, uh, I don't know, folks will say, well, there was one slave revolt and that was it. Okay, well, we know there were dozens, right? And it takes imagination to even imagine that you can go out and you can create freedom. So when you talk about neoliberalism, I mean, you know, I'll talk about the effects a little bit. I've heard people, you know, um, of a younger generation say things like, you know, I can't believe that people had pensions. And I'm like, pensions actually did exist. Those, they, those were not fringe benefits. 
or, you know, unionizing was not a fringe benefit. It's not a strange unicorn. It used to be part of the norm. But neoliberalism tries to teach people that, um, you know, the state and just in general um, is all about you fending for yourself. And so it's hypercapitalism and it limits the imagination. Uh, Kenria, in your book, you too have an interview with Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Kahn Cullors in the introduction to that conversation on why we've got to tell a different story about blackness. You write, although second wave feminism declared that the personal is political and black feminists did the work of expanding the personal to include people who were not white, straight or middle class. The idea that I'm not free until we all are all free has always been a major one for us. So, Kenria, was there even white supremacy within second wave feminism? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's why black scholars had to, you know, come together to really think about what that work looks like for us. And the Kobami uh, River Collective, you know, they really put a stamp on that back in 1977 with the Black Feminist Statement, where they really looked at the fact that, you know, if black women who, you know, experience uh, racism and sexism and all of the isms at a rate that crosses both what white women get and what black men get, if we can, you know, get to a place in the society where we are not pushed to the bottom of the hierarchy, where we can flatten things out so that there is actually equity and parity across everybody, then that brings us all here. And that's where we get to that. If we are, you know, not all free, then none of us are. And the reality is that white feminism, because that's what it was, it privileged whiteness, just like white supremacy did. Those are things that go together. And so black women very often felt as if and, and were in reality left out of the conversation. Um, you know, whether it came to wages or to, you know, rights for us to be able to take care of our children, all of those things impacted black women in different ways because they are not only women, but they are black. And so that's why black women throughout time have had to organize separately in order to be able to know that their needs are being met at the intersection where they live. And Akiba, I'm not trying to dismiss or ignore that intersection, but Akiba, how much of a disconnect is there between black feminism and white feminism, even to this day, even since the second wave of feminism in the 1970s? Yeah, I mean, I, I I think there's a large disconnect between the two, because what white feminism does is it makes white women achieving power within a hierarchy, more power within a hierarchy, a positive thing. So the idea of, you know, we can do it just like the boys. Well, on a space, that's fine, right? But if the boys are um, hoarding all of the wealth, if the boys are exterminating people, if the boys are otherwise being inhumane, being higher in that hierarchy is actually harmful. And I think the other thing that white feminism does, and I think that there are quite a few black feminist thinkers now who are clear to make this distinction, not only in their official work, but also just in their sort of day-to-day thought work, is that, you know, white feminism has even been used to obfuscate, sorry, um, white women's role in the slave trade or white women's role in in owning people. And so this idea that, you know, again, um, you know, I, I deserve to attain the same level as anybody else um, way too often, 
excludes everybody else. So you also write, uh, Kenria, uh, you talk to um, Tanara Burke, who is the founder of the Me Too movement uh, back in 2006. She states that we have to fight white supremacy and how it permeates our lives as black people in America, but we've also been co-opted by it. She then laughs and says, I know I sound probably like my grandfather now, but we're doing the work of the white folks ourselves. Why or how have black people been co-opted by white supremacy? And is it possible to not be co-opted by white supremacy and survive in the United States? Is it necessary for me, for you, for anyone to participate in white supremacy, further reinforcing it in order to, quote unquote, succeed in the United States? What a question. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) is the answer. Um, It's true. I mean, you know, we also write elsewhere in the book that, you know, we don't even need white people for white supremacy anymore. The reality is that white people, black people, other people of color, because you can also subscribe to this system without being stuck within the black and white binary, um, very often have internalized, you know, parts of that ideology. It can, you know, be something like um, black men who feel as if they deserve to be higher in the hierarchy than black women. <laughs> it can look like, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of examples of how it creeps in. I mean, it, it's everywhere. It's pervasive. And, you know, sometimes it's in the way that we interact with each other and the way that, you know, some black folks interact with other black folks and doing that work that without having to have a white person step in. And yeah, it's here. I think that the way that we subvert it um, is one to call it out, right. Which is, you know, like what we're doing in this book and to really, you know, be courageous ourselves and looking at the ways that we, we play into it. And also by starting really early. So both Akiba and I grew up in homes where we were taught very early about the ravages of white supremacy and about ways to fight it. And it was ingrained into us. I have a seven-year-old. And when I say that she sat down next to me at the kitchen table two weeks ago and she sighed and she said, mama, I wish we could just get rid of white supremacy right now. We could do so many other things. And it was just, it, it made me laugh. It made me a little sad, but it made me laugh because she she understands what this fight is. And she understands that she has to do something. And she also understands that it takes a lot of energy to be intentional and not feed into it, but that that's the only way that we're going to get through it. And so part of that is starting young and talking to our kids and being honest about the systems that we're living in so that when they experience it firsthand, they know what's going on. Excuse me, they know what's going on and they know how to not feed into it. And, you know, that's something that that I do. Like, I'll laugh at times when people don't think it's the right time to laugh, but I'm laughing. Like, with your daughter, I'd be laughing with joy. You know, it's not just out mm-hmm. of, it's hilarious. It's just wonderful that, that, that that's realized. Akiba, uh, you quote the artist Hank Willis Thomas saying, I fight white supremacy by reminding myself and everyone I can <laughs> everyone I can that race is fallacy, a divide and conquer strategy that will kill us all. How, Akiba, how is race a fallacy, a mistaken belief based on an unsound argument? Hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, that that's, it's a fallacy. I mean, if we want to talk about the biology, which is actually not my favorite argument, but I mean, bi- biologically, you know, we, we share most uh, genetic material, right? So the idea that you've, again, you've created a hierarchy based on something as unreasonable is how you look. And, and I mean, if you really just think about 
how that doesn't make any sense. If you get outside of the system of white supremacy and all that it has created, just that idea on its face is really quite ridiculous. Like, why would one group of people be more human or be better than another group of people? You cannot answer that question. But what white supremacy and racism does is it provides a bunch of answers that aren't true. And so, you know, it's just a way, once again, to reinforce um, this idea that there's one group of people who deserve more or who, or one group of people who don't deserve to exist um, besides providing free labor. Um, and I think that's where the fallacy is. We have been speaking with Akiba Solomon and Kenria Rankin. They are co-authors of How We Fight White Supremacy, a field guide to black resistance, a collection of essays and interviews that features past This Is Hell guests Adrian Marie Brown and Robin D.G. Kelly. You can find out more about Akiba on Twitter at Akiba Solomon, and you can follow Kenria on Twitter at Kenria, K-E-N, R-Y-A. We have one final question that we always do with all of our guests, and I'm going to have one for each of you. And we call our final question of every interview the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. It's one or the other. So, Kenria, let's start with you. Why do white supremacists find white supremacy attractive? Why, why are there white supremacists? What's so attractive about white supremacy? You know, people are vain, vain, vain. I think that a lot of people are motivated by feeling amazing about themselves. And anything that makes them feel like they are at the top of the heap makes them feel fantastic and whether it's because they really you know they look we're all human we all have things that we go through but for some reason there are folks who are lured in by the siren song of a system that tells them that they are everything that they are better that they deserve more and that they not only deserve more but that they deserve more at the expense of other people it makes them feel important it makes them feel powerful well, that's sad. Uh, so, uh, Akiba, <laughs> our question from hell for you is, is ending white supremacy as difficult as ending hate? Oh, um, <laughs> uh, yes. I, well, yeah, I mean, I think it is. And that white supremacy is a really potent form of hate. And, you know, hate, to me, speaks of an emotion or, you know, an interpersonal struggle. But when you create an entire political, economic, and cultural system that, that that you know, again, uh, creates a hierarchy and the danger of being at the bottom of the hierarchy is that you could literally lose your life, then, yeah, that is really difficult to supplant. So I think, you know, white supremacy is a form of hate. Um, I think hate is sort of an existential question, um, but um, I, I do think that, yeah, I think they're equally as hard. Akiba and Kenria, I really appreciate you two being on our show today. Again, they are co-authors of How We Fight White Supremacy, a field guide to black resistance. And I just want to let you both know that probably the most enjoyable thing that I do on this show is talk to black feminists. I just love talking to black feminists. It's the greatest thing in the world. So thank you so much. It's really an honor to have you both on the show. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. 
Again, you can follow Akiba on Twitter at Akiba Solomon, and you can find out more about Kenria at her website, Kenria, K-E-N-R-Y-A.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Kenria. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Police violence and torture has a long and disturbing history in Chicago. Also having a long history in Chicago, fighting police violence. We'll tour Chicago's disquieting history of police violence, find out where the battle against it is today, and what some events happening in Chicago may mean for the future of police violence in Chicago in just a few minutes when we talk to our irregular correspondent on all things law enforcement, Flint Taylor, will be on to discuss his new memoir, The Torture Machine, which, yes, was an actual thing that police used used on innocent victims to get them to plead guilty to crimes they did not commit, landing some on death row. Yep, this history of police violence and torture in Chicago really, really sucks. It's time for listener feedback. Now, the first thing we got, as far as listener feedback is concerned, is a package. We got a very large package from somebody in the mail. So I want to tell everybody that you can send us stuff to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. So we got this package in the mail and uh, came with this letter. Dear Chuck and Alex, I was thrilled to hear today that my answer to the question from hell, what will be the hot new superfood of 2024, confinement loaf, was selected as the winning response. I dedicate this award to Frank Zappa, who introduced me to this authoritarian dish via his 1988 album, Broadway the Hard Way, and I look forward to reading Christina Ward's book, American Advertising Cookbooks, which you may mail to the post office box above at your convenience. My question from Hal Victory directly followed that of a fellow Mainer, this is from uh, Portland, Maine, uh, and friend Dan Kay, whose answer to the hellish query, what have the lizard people been up to lately? He said, accusing Ilhan Omar of anti-lizardism, earned him a handsome This Is Hell tote bag. Mr. K's teenage daughter, Phoebe, is a columnist for my publication, The Bollard, which you will find enclosed. That's B-O-L-L-A-R-D. The Bollard is an alt-monthly news and art magazine about Maine that I founded in 2005. As you'll see if you peruse the copies I've enclosed, we share your enthusiasm for exposing racist hate mongers, Main First Mania is the article you should check. Yuppie Scum, check out Mean Magazine. And sadomasochistic military programs like S-E-R-E. You may also notice that we have uh, common interests in beer, weed, and deadly flu viruses like the one Chuck hosted a few weeks back. Should you have the opportunity to visit Vacation Land again, I hope you will allow us to buy you gallons of Maine craft beer and give you a big jar of our finest homegrown in appreciation for the countless hours of insightful interviews and commentary you've provided over the years, we will endeavor not to infect you with any new flu strains. In solidarity, Chris Busby, editor and publisher at The Ballard, can find out more at theballard.com, B-O-L-L-A-R-D. P.S. Jeff Dorchin is a national treasure and should be granted all the tax breaks 
that distinction entails. So thank you very much, Chris. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the many uh, copies of The Bollard. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to remind our listening audience that they can send stuff to us at This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Andy writes to Chuck at thisishell.com. Hey, Chuck and Alex, imagine my shock when I found out. Get this, folks. Beto O'Rourke was in the cult of the dead cow and wrote about, under the pseudonym, Psychedelic Warlord. Anyway, you replayed your interview with Sir Distic of the cult of the dead cow a few weeks ago, and I figured it would be great fun to read all of Beto's cult of the dead cow textile text file, textile, text file releases. He says, so far my favorite of Beto's writing is this excerpt from Visions from the Last Crusade. And Flint, you're a huge fan of Beto O'Rourke, so <laughs> here, let's turn on your mic so you can laugh at me. That, that's is a, your mic on there? That's a setup. Yeah, it is a setup. Hey, I don't think his mic's on. Oh, you don't have it hot yet. How about now? Try your mic. There you go. I know it's working now. So, yeah, it's a total setup. So this is what Beto O'Rourke <laughs> wrote in the 90s when he was in this hacker group, Cult of the Dead Cow. Then one day, as I was driving home from work, I noticed two children crossing the street. They were happy, happy to be free from their troubles. I knew, however, that this happiness and sense of freedom were much too overwhelming for them. This happiness was mine by right. (laughs) I had earned it in my dreams. As I neared the young ones, I put all my weight on my right foot keeping the accelerator pedal on the floor until I heard the crashing of the two children on the hood of my car and then the sharp cry of pain from one of the two. (laughs) What the hell was Beto O'Rourke up to back in the 90s? Uh, Andy writes, Warlord tendencies for sure. If you like, I can send you a text file of all this stuff, but it may not be complete or accurate. Here's a link to Jake Scott's The Internet Archive Cult of the Dead Cow text files and a list of the ones Beto apparently had a part in. Andy, Andy, thank you so much for what will be uh, weeks of material for this show. Uh, Andy sent like 10 of these links, and we'll be reading them one by one on This Is Hell until either Beto O'Rourke stops running for president or every one of our listeners knows not to vote for Beto O'Rourke for president. If you don't like Medicare for All and you don't like the Fight for 15 campaign, Beto, you can go screw yourself. You can email me, chuck at thisishell.com. We'll get back into listener feedback in a little while, but Flint is here, and I'd rather get to Flint. This week's question from hell is, what will ACA be? What will all cops are bastards stand for after we abolish the police? What will all cops are bastards stand for after we abolish the police? All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a book we are about to feature on this week's show, Flint Taylor's The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. Again, the question from hell is, what will all cops are bastard ACAB stand for after we abolish the police? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Chicago has a long history of police violence and fighting against police violence, and we'll discuss police violence of the past, present, and even what the future may hold. And the epitome of white supremacy is the U.S. prison system, which actually encourages racism, racial violence, and the creation of race gangs that, when released, who knew, commit crimes. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin weaponizes Purim. We'll also have what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll get back into listener feedback, question from hell, what's up happening on upcoming shows, all that kind of stuff. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. 
Live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio, this is how Chicago has been the home of police violence and torture for a very long time. We've also been the home of fighting police violence and torture for a very long time, too. Here to take us on a guided tour of the past, present, and even possibly the future for police violence in Chicago. Easily one of the greatest humans I have ever met. Give me your hand, sir. Second greatest who I've met through the show, second to Kathy Kelly. I hope you don't mind. I don't okay. at all. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Not Thank at you, all. Flint. Uh, founding partner of the People's Law Office in Chicago, Flint Taylor is author of The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. You can follow the People's Law Office on Twitter at People's Law Chai, People's Law C-H-I. Flint's book is a memoir on his years of fighting police violence. You've done this work through the People's Law Office. I saw somebody post your appearance on Democracy Now! this week on social media, and a commenter replied, private firm, with a question mark and a hmm emoji scratching its chin. So what is People's Law Office, and should the fact that it is a private firm give people pause when considering your work fighting police violence? (laughs) Well, the People's Law Office will be um, uh, celebrating, um, if that's the correct word, our existence uh, for 50 years uh, later on this year. Uh, private firm, yes. Uh, we started out uh, as a collective, uh, and we still are a collective in terms of uh, how we operate, the decisions we make, uh, how we pay people who work there. Uh, and we survive, uh, for better or for worse, on fees that we primarily get in fighting police brutality and police violence cases in the courts uh, and succeeding against the city of Chicago, the county of Cook, and other places uh, for money uh, judgments. So uh, everybody's entitled to scratch their chin if they want, but they can uh, take a look at 50 years of what we've done and make their decisions for themselves as to whether we are a people's law office and if our work uh, qualifies uh, for fighting uh, police brutality and police violence or not. As an attorney, why did you choose to fight police violence? Why, of all things, do you work to stop police violence? Well, it kind of chose me and chose my my fellow uh, people's law office lawyers and and students, and um, it, it chose us during a, a period of our history where uh, people were being murdered, particularly people like the, uh, Fred Hampton uh, and the Bla- and Mark Clark of the Black Panthers. Uh, people were being arrested, beaten, uh, shot, uh, um, railroaded to prison. Uh, and this was primarily uh, a racist and white supremacist um, operation by the highest levels of, of police and, and official uh, uh, government. So uh, in that sense, uh, there was very little choice in my mind but to take up as a lawyer uh, the uh, work that we have uh, taken up and continue to do right to the present. How much does white supremacy depend on enforcement by police? Oh, a great deal. Uh, enforcement by police, enforcement by uh, judges, enforcement by prosecutors, enforcement by correctional officers, uh, enforcement by uh, officials uh, who run the schools. You, you can start right at the beginning uh, in terms of, of, of what we, how we deal with our children. Uh, and take it all the way uh, through to uh, the prisons and and, uh, uh, solitary confinement uh, and and, and the whole nine yards. So I want to make certain that, you know, 
the audience understands that I do not condone police violence, but has there ever been any evidence that police violence in any way, police intimidation, whatever, led to less crime? Of course, the police violence itself, aside as that is a crime in itself, but was has there ever been any evidence that police violence has led to less violence, less crime, again, other than police violence itself? I've never seen any. Uh, as you point out, there, there certainly is a lot of uh, official crime. A lot of uh, police violence is certainly a crime. It's a systemic crime. It's a racist crime. Uh, I don't think that there's ever been a serious study that says uh, if you torture someone, uh, you're going to uh, cause there to be less crime. Uh, you're going to have a more just criminal justice system if you torture someone to get a false confession, if you send someone to death row because he falsely confessed uh, to a crime, or even if he confessed to a crime that he committed. Because obviously nobody should be tortured, uh, guilty, innocent, or uh, unknown whether guilty or innocent. So then what explains why people are attracted to endorsing police violence? What explains why people are like, yeah, well, I want those cops to go in there and kick some ass, if you know that all that leads to is more crime in the future? Well, um, coming over here, I, I listened to your wonderful uh, your wonderful interview uh, that you just finished about pol- uh, white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And that analysis, and maybe that's the answer. Uh, I would think it might be an important answer to your question uh, that people, uh, ripe supremacists and people who don't really uh, challenge white supremacy, uh, they don't really think rationally in terms of whether there's a cause and result that's beneficial to society. Even if you could say that you could reduce crime by police violence, which you can't, mm-hmm. um, that would that be a good result? Is that the only way that you can reduce crime, so to speak? That uh, Don't you need to look at the causes of crime? Don't you need to look at the economic and social causes of crime, uh, what we need to do to really uh, solve these problems rather than to just uh, come down on it with, with violence. You uh, work fighting police violence. Your work fighting uh, police violence started with the 1969 murders by police of uh, Black Panther Party Chairman Fred Hampton and Panther Mark Clark. You were 23, right? Uh, uh, yes. Uh, when Fred was assassinated, uh, that case lasted 13 years. While that case was originally dismissed by a lower court, the Court of Appeals overturned the dismissal. The Court of Appeals found that evidence uh, supported allegations of conspiracy among the Chicago police, the Cook County State's attorney, and the FBI against the Black Panthers. The appeals court uh, further ruled that the government should be sanctioned for refusing to turn over 200-plus documents the feds had collected on the Black Panthers. They also decided that you and your law partner, Jeffrey Haas, were wrongfully cited for contempt in 1982. The case was settled for $1.85 million. First, why were you cited for contempt? Um, That's what they say, a long story. Um, (laughs) I I will say that uh, the Court of Appeals, in reversing that contempt, I did spend a few hours in jail. um, And uh, during that time, I... um, I wrote the uh, J. Sam Piggy Blues, and uh, J. J. Sam Perry was the judge who sent me to uh, sent me to jail. 
Um, and uh, he was uh, decidedly against us from beginning to end in that trial. Uh, I was I allegedly uh, knocked a water pitcher, pitcher off of the uh, council table and it broke uh, against the jury box. Jury wasn't there at that time. Yeah. Um, I my defense was that it, I was just throwing my papers down on the table uh, in in complete uh, frustration because of. Um, the rulings that the judge was making, uh, and uh, the Court of Appeals, in reversing my contempt, said I had reached the uh, the limit of my forbearance uh, with regard to this judge and over overturned my contempt. Uh, so that's kind of the short version. Of so it. was it on purpose? Uh, well, you know, I, I'm not under oath, so I don't have to take the Fifth Amendment <laughs> like John Burge and his people have done. Uh, let's put it this way. As... My memory's a little foggy about how intentional it might have been or not. <laughs> I love the Reagan defense. I got to love the Reagan defense. So was any single officer ever held accountable, ever held responsible for the deaths of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark? No, in terms of criminal right. Uh, sanctions. Yeah. Right. I mean, to the degree that we were able to hold them responsible civilly uh, in terms of the decision you mentioned of the higher courts, uh, finding there was a very strong case of conspiracy between the F- <coughs> excuse me, the FBI, uh, Cook County State's Attorney, uh, Ed Hanrahan, and the police who raided. In that sense, we held them accountable. In that sense, the narrative was changed, which was very important. The historical narrative was changed from a shootout between the Panthers and the police to uh, a shoot-in. Then it was changed to murder and then ultimately to a political assassination, which is, I think, uh, what is accepted and and righteously so uh, at this time uh, in terms of the murder of Fred Hampton. But in terms of anybody going to jail, no. Uh, there was a prosecution for obstruction of justice and for uh, of Hanrahan and the raiding cops, not for murder, not for attempted murder. And that case was uh, thrown out on the eve of the 1972 election uh, of Hanrahan or ex- uh, by a judge who was totally wired to the Democratic machine. So... How significant of a victory was the Hampton case in fighting police violence? Did Fred Hampton's case lead to the police instituting reforms? Did it have a legacy that undermined police brutality and violence? Well, uh, that's, um, I think, uh, a political question more than a legal question. Uh, I I don't think that necessarily uh, the murder of Fred Hampton and the the struggles that we and the movement went through uh, led to any um, meaningful police reform. However, what it did lead to was a movement, a movement that arose out of the outrage at the murders themselves that was rekindled when the feds covered up and wouldn't indict anyone. And then when the special prosecutor actually brought those uh, obstruction of justice charges uh, and the uh, machine judge threw them out at the at, at the edge of the 1972 elections in order to help uh, Hanrahan get reelected as state's attorney, uh, the African-American community arose again and created a movement that not only voted Ed Hanrahan out of office, but can be uh, traced as a direct line to the election of Harold Washington over a decade later. And some people say also had some impact on the election of Obama many, many, many years later. So uh, this is a little bit off topic a little bit. So how much of an effect 
can voting, can having different leadership in Chicago have on fighting police violence? Is this the kind of thing, police violence, that is always in the background? It's something that, that uh, you know, there's the whole thing with President Obama and people were saying that he didn't get the things done because of too much obstructionism or too many things that are built into the system or Donald Trump saying he can't get things done because of the quote-unquote deep state. It is, can, can voting, can, to what degree can politicians actually have an impact on fighting police violence? Well, they certainly have an impact. Um, if you look at Harold Washington, uh, there was uh, the start of some changes with regard to police reform. However, he had a tremendous amount of political and racist resistance to what he was trying to do. And he would often say, you need to make me do it to the people who got him elected. In other words, the, the movement... Uh, people have to really make those changes and make those politicians make whatever changes that they have to make. Uh, now we're uh, on the brink of a, an election that, uh, on the face of it, looks um, could be a game changer, right? Two African-American women running against each other. Both have at least uh, either superficially with regard to Lightfoot and more uh, uh, actually, with regard to Preckwinkle, have taken some strong stands over the years against torture and police brutality. But uh, just because they got elected certainly isn't going to make a difference in and of itself if, in fact, the people, uh, the movements that support them uh, and who have fought uh, against police violence uh, continue to be in the forefront. Maybe they will have to be held accountable and make whatever changes uh, are, are uh, pressed upon them to make. But there'll be a big a big one right there, right in front of them at the beginning, and that is this cop academy. Because there's a movement now to say no cop academy. We don't want to put $100 million um, into uh, training these cops to be better cops, quote-unquote, to do their jobs, quote-unquote, better, but rather that money should go uh, to the community, should go to deal with mental health issues, should go to deal with educational issues, and ultimately that should be, as I think was implied by the people you just uh, interviewed, the abolition of the police. So how much better is police accountability today? And in your life, have you seen it wax and wane like did, did police accountability was it at one level then under Harold Washington it increased and then it decreased again uh, uh, wh how would you describe the trajectory of police accountability in your career well I you know I don't think Harold Washington uh, actually got to change the trajectory much because uh, in fact um, during the 80s the police torture that's described in my book uh, was at its height uh, and his police superintendent, Fred Rice, was informed of it and did nothing about it in the same way that Daly, who was the state's attorney at that time, uh, did nothing about it and covered it up. Um, I think the trajectory, unfortunately, is, is fairly straight. Um, in some ways, fighting against police bruta brutality and police violence is a resistance to, if, if there isn't that resistance, then the kind of white supremacy, the kind of violence will increase. And, and, and so in some ways, you're holding uh, back the tide more than you're actually advancing the ball. 
So uh, in in 1987, you're a part of the team of lawyers who represented death row prisoner Andrew Wilson. Wilson alleged that the his civil rights were violated by Area 2 Chicago Police Commander John Burge, who had tortured Wilson with electric shock and forced Wilson to confess to the 1982 murder of two Chicago police officers, which is why he was on death row. Why did you and your team of lawyers, why did you take that case? What was so compelling about Wilson's story that made you believe that it was a court fight that you and the attorneys not only wanted to fight, but you thought you could win? Well, those are two different questions. Uh, When we got into the case, I don't think we had any anticipation we would win the case because Andrew Wilson was convicted and on death row at that time for killing two white police officers. On the other hand, uh, what was com- compelling about it was that this was a, 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 an outrageous case of torture. Uh, not only, And when I use the term torture in that context, it's the kind of torture uh, that's described in the book yeah. uh, and, and characterized by the torture machine. It was uh, electric shock. It was suffocation with a bag. It was burning on a radiator. It was burning with cigarettes. It was beating. It was all kinds of, of extreme torture to get a confession from Andrew Wilson. Um, and because he was a cop killer, no one wanted to represent him in, in, in suing under the uh, Constitution for his hu- human rights violations. And so when he came to us, knowing about our reputation for fighting uh, uh, in the Fred Hampton case for all those years, uh, we, we discussed it in terms of human rights violations and said, regardless of who he is, regardless of what he was convicted of, uh, he, like everyone else in, in this society under this supposed constitution and under uh, international human rights law, should not have been tortured. And if he was, the people who tortured him should be brought to account. And since the powers that be would not prosecute John Byrd, well, we could at least prosecute him in a civil context, and that's what we decided to do. And when we decided to do it, as I said, we had no anticipation that we would uncover what we uncovered and that, in fact, I'd be sitting here 32 years later talking about and seeing the Chicago Sun-Times upon the death of John Burge uh, refer to him as the notorious torturer and also talk openly about uh, Mayor uh, Richard Daly's involvement in the cover-up. In your new book, The Torture Machine, you write of the Wilson case, Chicago is rocked by a series of fatal shootings of police officers in broad daylight. On February 9th, 1982, two uniformed CPD officers, Richard O'Brien and William Fahey, were shot and killed during a routine traffic stop on Chicago's south side. They had just attended the funeral of a Chicago police officer who had been shot only days before. Two black men fled the scene in a brown Chevy, and Mayor Jane Byrne and her uh, police superintendent, Richard Brezik? Brezak. Uh, mandated that would uh, become the most massive manhunt in Chicago's history. Brzezak designated Lieutenant John Burge, who headed up the Violent Crimes Unit in Area 2, to direct search, direct the search for the killers, the geographical area that was policed by Area 2, which covered most of Chicago's predominantly African-American far south side, became the main focus of this manhunt. How intense was the manhunt, and were there any reports of abuse? It was um, it was a terror terrorism at its finest. Official uh, uh, police terrorism. Uh, they kicked in doors. They pulled people out of their homes. They 
beat people up, uh, if they thought that the people uh, had any knowledge of or even proximity to the area where the where the uh, shootings took place, uh, they tortured them. They took them to two of the South Side detective areas and 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 did everything from suffocation to taking them on the roof of the police station and and putting their their hands into uh, bolt cutters. Uh, and then, of course, when they had the men, they thought. Uh, committed the uh, the shootings. Uh, they tortured them with, with suffocation and electric shock. Uh, then they tur- it turned out they weren't the persons uh, who had did it, done it. Uh, and so they went back on the street and continued uh, their terrorist uh, rampages in, in the black community until they found the Wilson brothers. And, of course, then the torture machine was put into operation again. You write the investigation had zeroed in on a group of young men who lived close to the murder scene, a contingent of very two detectives, including Frank Laverty, a stand-up cop who believed in telling the truth, went to the men's house and took six of them into custody. Laverty was about to transport them to Area 2 when Burge approached him and directed him to relinquish custody because Burge intended to take them to police headquarters at 11th and State for interrogation, all too aware of Burge's reputation. Laverty pointedly told his boss, quote, he's cuffed, he ain't hurt, he ain't been touched. Laverty later told you that he cared more about the case being done right than about some punch in the head. How often in your line of work have you come across stand-up cops? Frank was the only stand-up cop in the sense of someone who, who told the truth when he was working uh, on the job. Uh, he exposed the street files, the secret files that the police department uh, uh, kept, and uh, that got him busted from being a, a detective to, to, to watching uh, recruits give urine samples over to, uh, at police headquarters. Uh, that What happened to Laverty, who was the Serpico of Chicago, made it so that the cops who wanted to talk about Burge's torture uh, felt that they could not uh, come forward. Uh, they only came forward anonymously, and I think the book talks about the the deep badge, the the, the anonymous letters I got that really laid out the the the, the map, so to speak, for uh, investigating the torture cases and the systemic and race, racist na- nature of it. Never found out who that person was. Uh, there was another anonymous uh, cop uh, who gave us information. We went to meet that person at a bar, and that person uh, did not show up. Uh, but they were all telling us anonymously what we were learning, that there was a police torture system. Now, in 2004, after several black cops retired who had worked with Burge and who knew it was what they called an open secret uh, that he was torturing people and his his crew was, was torturing people, um, I took their statements. And because they were no longer in the department, they told me what they knew. Now, Burge never let any black detectives into the rooms where they were torturing. One black detective did walk in on a scene once. But they knew from just, you know, hanging out uh, and hearing and and, uh, seeing the, they actually saw the box, for example. So they they told me that. But they waited until they were retired and they no longer could be subjected to the kind of uh, ostracism and, 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 and threats of violence uh, that that uh, Laverty suffered because good because of how he came forward so is there any 
racial divide that you witnessed within the Chicago Police Department when it comes to police brutality? Racial divide uh, between the officers? Yeah, or? yeah. Like they're like uh, black officers are like, hey man, I'm much more opposed to uh, brut- police brutality than white officers might be. Well, you have to understand that it t- takes a tremendous amount of courage for a black officer to step forward. Right. Uh, Renault Robinson and Howard Saffold uh, started the what was known at the time as the African American. Um, Patrolmen's Association, and they spoke out and called the murder of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark uh, murders. Well, Howard was taken off the job, and Renault was put uh, to uh, patrol behind uh, police headquarters. Uh, they uh, paid a huge price uh, as police officers for, for stepping forward. Uh, you have to ask, uh, this, the, the Fraternal Order of Police, extremely powerful maybe more powerful even than the police department itself, uh, has supported Burge uh, for all these years, supported uh, Van Dyke, the killer of of Laquan McDonald, all these years, paid for their defense when the city didn't. Uh, You have to say, well, where were the black officers then? Well, the, the board of directors of the Fraternal Order of Police, all white except for perhaps one. So the black officers, although I'm sure many of them didn't want their doers, dues to go to, to support a torturer like Burge right. or a murderer like Van Dyke, uh, really had no power, really did not have the kind of courage that was necessary, and I'm not necessarily criticizing them for that because I'm not a black police officer right. in the Chicago Police <laughs> right, Department, right. but that the men who did have the courage, like Saffold, like Renault Robinson, and women like Pat Hill, who, who, who headed up the African, what was known later as the African American Police League, um, they paid a huge price. And you had to be willing to pay that price and to fight the system the racist uh, and very powerful police system and uh, union system. Uh, And, uh, you know, there are precious few uh, officers, black or white, who would pay that price. We are speaking with founding partner of the People's Law Office in Chicago, Flint Taylor. He is author of The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. So, Flint, can we blame police brutality? Can we blame police violence? Can we blame any problems that we have with the Chicago Police Department, can we blame that all on the fraternal order of police? Is it not the police's fault as much as it is their union representation's fault? There's plenty of blame that can to go around, and I mean, we really have to take it all the way back to the idea of who do the police serve and protect? Uh, do they serve and protect people? Uh, do they serve and protect the communities that they patrol? Or do they serve and protect property and the powerful interests of the city uh, and the government. And I think uh, you and I both would answer that question uh, the same way in terms of who they are protecting. So uh, if you want to spread the blame around, we can go right back to white supremacy. We can go right back to the whole uh, economic system, uh, the power structure in this city, uh, and um, all of that as well. So uh, you write that in that Andrew Wilson case, the death row inmate, inmate who alleged to have been tortured into admitting to killing police by uh, Detective John Burge, and quote, Anthony Williams, nicknamed Mertz, 
which is the worst street name ever. Why the <laughs> hell did he pick Mertz? I cannot figure that out for the life of me. Did you ever figure that out? I, I never asked him that. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> anyway, so he later identified Burge as one of his interrogators. Uh, Burge cuffed Anthony to a chair, beat him with a phone book, placed a plastic bag over his head. He then said, let's take the cuffs off of him, take him to the staircase, shoot him, and say he was trying to escape. After consulting with a uh, detective for a moment, Burge returned to the room, pulled out a long silver-barreled gun, said that he was going to shoot this N-word and put the gun to Anthony's head. Anthony was saved from further abuse. When a black cop entered the room after Burge left, the officer told Anthony to pretend that he was being beaten in case Burge was listening. How much does police violence in general, not just maybe divide black and white officers, which we've already discussed, and you said that it's not necessarily the case, but how much do you think police violence, police brutality today, do you think it's increasingly dividing the police department? Do you think there's a debate, an internal debate happening? You know, I, I'm really not privy to that one right, way right. or the other. Um, I do think, uh, obviously, there are more African American officers and 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 and, and leaders in in the department. Uh, but if you look at the, some of the superintendents who uh, were working under Daly uh, and who countenanced uh, police torture, they were African American. Uh, Fred Rice, uh, uh, Leroy Martin. And now we have Eddie Johnson, who's uh, and 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 also um, Hillard uh, was uh, an African American chief. All of those chiefs, for one reason or another, went along with a covered up, justified, uh, or denied police torture. So it's not necessarily uh, the race of the person in terms of the leadership. Uh, but it's uh, really who they serve. And um, Eddie Johnson's a perfect example of that. When the Laquan McDonald case broke uh, and, and Rahm had to do all the things that he felt he had to do to, to, to keep from totally uh, having his whole administration go up in complete flames, he brought in Eddie Johnson. Eddie Johnson had been, knew where all the bones and all the bar- bodies had been buried because he'd been in the department right. working these various uh, spots as, as a leader uh, for decades. Uh, and Rom fought against bringing in an independent uh, uh, leader who might actually do something to change the culture of the department. And the culture of the department hasn't changed all of these years. We still have a, a code of silence. We still have uh, the kind of police culture that we had back when I started uh, doing this work. You negotiated uh, kind of, uh, you ne- negotiated this reparations following the Laquan McDonald case. Um, uh, those who continue, you write, those who continue to fight the constitutional and human right to a fair hearing, free from torture and brutality, encounter added resistance from the public's short attention span and a desire on the part of politicians for finality to put the torture scandal behind us. The truth is that it will never be behind us, and Chicago's collective conscience will not be cleansed until and unless the city of broad shoulders and the nation as a whole reckon fully with the systemic racism of law enforcement in the criminal courts, of mass incarceration, and the death penalty, and of the political power structure. Until then, the struggle must continue. How much do the net reparations that you helped negotiate, that the city of Chicago gave to Birch and Burge victims, uh, how much do those go towards fighting police brutality? How much do you think that that will help in the fight 
against police brutality? Well, reparations was a, a tremendous uh, effort by uh, an intergenerational and interracial movement that that arose to uh, to not to give a win to the sales of reparations, something that uh, seemed impossible only years before. Uh, and those reparations included not only uh, uh, financial reparations to the uh, living uh, survivors of police torture who had never gotten any money. There was no, there was no legal uh, basis for them to get money, but it, there was a moral and political basis. But more important than the, than the financial uh, reparations was the non-financial reparations, everything from a, a, a center on the south side, which is up and running, where people could, uh, families could be uh, uh, treated uh, for, for post-traumatic stress disorder and other uh, problems that arose from the torture. Uh, and also uh, um, um, memorial, and there's a fight going on right now because Rahm was trying to take away the money for the memorial uh, to the survivors of police torture. Uh, apology, which Rahm made uh, and, and the city council made to the, to the survivors, and most significantly, I think, uh, teaching uh, torture uh, to 10th, 8th and 10th graders uh, in the Chicago public schools. And that has started, and that has a huge impact because the narrative that we helped to, help to fought to change in terms of torture uh, and what it meant here in the city, uh, its systemic and racist nature, is now uh, being uh, kind of... Um, embodied in in the teaching of torture. So to answer your question, uh, I think it's a very significant accomplishment, the reparations, and it has been in some form or another been implemented in some other places, like uh, uh, Little Rock, for example, and, and New Orleans. Uh, and it, it stands as an example of, of, of a restorative justice of a way, and, and in terms of, uh, I think it's a model uh, for people going forward, uh, when because it's outside of the judicial system per se, it doesn't have to do with uh, prosecuting the, the uh, torturers. Uh, it has to do with making whole the um, the victims or the survivors of of police violence, and also of bringing a narrative for people to understand really what. Uh, the nature of police violence and torture is. So, how do you? Uh, I don't. I don't mean to ask you to speculate, but how, how do, you, how do you think that will affect students? How do you think that will impact the way that they view and interact with the police? Well, you know, I've had the uh, um, honor to to speak to a class in Pilsen of, okay. of seventh and eighth graders, and I know one of my close. Uh, clients and, and comrades, Daryl Cannon, has spoken all over the city to different schools, uh, children. Mm -hmm. And the impact, I can tell you what kind of an impact it had on us, which is the, 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 the students, uh, their willingness to learn about it and to ask about it and to relate to it, it being the narrative of police torture, is overwhelming. Uh, the kind of response that I got uh, each student wrote me a letter afterwards, and each student that Daryl Cannon is, uh, spoke to wrote letters. I think that's one of the things that they had the, the children do. Um, 
And you think about it now, there was resistance in the police communities of the city, in the white communities. Uh, they, they, they raised hell about teaching their kids uh, the truth about police torture because their fathers and uncles were pol- police officers. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, teaching it in the predominantly uh, communities of color, uh, those children can relate to it in a very personal way. They relate to it in terms of, well, uh, the cop treated me or my sister or my brother a certain way on the street. I have a relative who who is a victim of mass incarceration. Uh, I have uh, seen police brutality or perhaps even suffered police brutality in some form or another. So the history, the contextualizing of, of police torture and the racist nature of it and white supremacy and all of that, I think particularly with the children, uh, the young people, uh, in society here in the city uh, is really important. And I take hope from seeing those young people in Florida and, and just last week, uh, the climate change mm-hmm. children. Children. I shouldn't <laughs> call them children, right? And you hear them speak, right? Some of them, 8, 10 years old, can can lay down a rap that uh, many of us w- would just be jealous of, of laying down right now. Right. Um, so I think if we're adding in some way to that in this city in terms of consciousness about police violence and racism, that is probably the, the, the greatest uh, accomplishment of the reparations movement here. So uh, let's get back to the Wilson case just for a second. You write a high-ranking Cook County assistant uh, prosecutor from Richard M. Daley's state, uh, state's attorney's office. Mike Angarola was also president at 11th and State during the interrogations and torturing and was reporting to Daley's first assistant, Richard Devine, who was a na- neighbor of uh, Pete Velavanis. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Uh, so uh, according to Walter White, Angarola was present when Detective Fred Hill beat him. In contrast, a black Area 2 detective named Sammy Lacey and the black commander of Area 2, Milton Dees, uh, who had uh, reported to headquarters after hearing that the cop killers had supposedly been captured, were relegated to an office distant from the interrogations. So could Daly, with one word to Angarola, could have he stopped the torture? Could have he done something about ending John Burge's reign of torture? Yes. Um, what you, what, that piece that you just read and the prior piece, th- that was the torture of the of the men that I mentioned earlier who were wrongfully picked were, up. Right, right. This was like days before um, Wilson brothers were picked up. Yes. So obviously if, if, if Devine, who was the first assistant at that point, uh, or Daly, or Kunkel, who was third in command, any of those state's attorneys who were obviously uh, on notice had had gone down there and instead of encouraging the torture, had said, look, said what Laverty said, which is, you know, I, I, I don't want to dirty up this case with torture. Let's deal. They had an eyewitness. They didn't really need to do what they did. They did it out of revenge. They did it out of racism. They did it out of anger. Um, and uh, Daly was later, just a short time later, after Wilson was tortured and, and a doctor was, was outraged by seeing the injuries on Wilson and told Brzezek, the superintendent, look, something has to be done about this torture. Brzezek, the superintendent, by covering his rear end, uh, then gave Daly the information, look, these guys were tortured. 
uh, Wilson Brothers. And Daly, instead of at that point acting, and could have stopped uh, 10 years of torture by moving on Burge at that time, uh, covered it up and commended Burge uh, and proceeded with the evidence of torture to uh, convict uh, the Wilson Brothers. This also happened during the time of the Jane Byrne administration. Who do you hold more responsible, Byrne or Daly, for the tortures? Well, I have to hold Daly more responsible in terms of the entire scope and breadth of the uh, scandal. Um, the, the torture machine uh, is called that not only because of the black box that's depicted on the cover, uh, which was the electric shock box that Burge used, but because uh, the torture machine uh, is the daily machine, is the democratic machine. And of course, um, Jane Byrne was a piece of that machine as well, and she was actively encouraging that uh, terroristic uh, um, attack on the black community, looking for the the, the killers or the cops. But Daly uh, was involved from the early '80s uh, till the uh, the day that he uh, left office in covering up and facilitating uh, the torture scandal. So he is ultimately much more responsible than Jane Byrne if we are assessing a responsibility here. You write Andrew Wilson was then taken to a small interrogation room with a window that faced south onto 91st Street. Under the window stood an old-fashioned ribbed steam radiator, which Andrew, who had only a first-grade education, referred to as a heaterator. On each side of the window above the radiator had a hand, was a handcuff ring. Across the street was a Chicago Fire Department station. Could the people in the fire department see the torture going on? How open of a secret was police torture in Chicago? Well, they, I don't think they could see it. But uh, as John Conroy, who is one of the heroes of this story, John Conroy being a reader, uh, investigative reporter, uh, he, he covered uh, the two trials that we did in 1989. Uh, and, and he then uh, took the evidence that that we had developed and, and did his own investigation. And he called his article, which came out in early 1990, The House of Screams. And he called it that because uh, I think he spoke to some of those fire people. And although they were kind of tight-lipped, they did admit, uh, and people in the neighboring houses admitted that they heard screams coming out of uh, the police headquarters that Burge uh, ran there, and hence the House of Screams being uh, the detective area, Area 2, where the torture took place. Uh, so the fire people probably didn't see it, uh, but they heard it. So were the police who committed violence so arrogant, so certain that they would never be caught or punished, even if they were caught, that they became sloppy in covering their tracks? Or are they so good at police violence that they do an exceptional job of not leaving any traces of police violence? Well, I think uh, there was a tremendous amount of arrogance. Uh, the arrogance that was shown in the murders of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, uh, for example, uh, when they left the apartment open uh, for us to go there and, and take evidence and show the true nature of, of, of the uh, assassination, um, that kind of reflected their arrogance. Uh, they thought they could call it a shootout and that would be the end of it. The, the press would buy it, which they did initially, uh, and people would, would, would buy it and, and that would be the story. Um, but with regard to torture, it was an open secret. 
Uh, yes, they had to have a tremendous amount of arrogance, and they were sloppy from time to time. Burge was very angry because of the fact that they uh, left marks on Andrew Wilson's face. But then again, he was uh, in charge of the uh, electric shock torturing, which pushed Andrew against that heaterator that you read about. Mm -hmm. So uh, when he was electric shocked, he was handcuffed across the, the, the radiator, and those ribs burned his chest in a pattern uh, that, was, uh, that showed the, the radiator. Wow. And so th those were physical injuries. Without those physical injuries, the Andrew Wilson case probably never would have led to a, uh, an Illinois Supreme Court decision uh, that overturned his death sentence, uh, and he ended up uh, with a, a life sentence uh, on, uh, on, on appeal. Um, but they were very arrogant. They figured they could get away with this, and why not? The prosecutors were in the station houses, were taking the statements. Uh, when they brought Andrew Wilson into the prosecutor uh, who was there, who was uh, higher up in the system, uh, and uh, he said, are you ready to confess? And Andrew said, uh, they're torturing me. I'm not going to uh, confess. The state's attorney said, get the jag off out of here. Uh, so they were not, their fingerprints were all over this. They used the confessions to prosecute, to send people to death row. Those were the prosecutors and, of course, the judges. The judges, of course, were very complicit. So everyone knew. The way that you described the torturing going on at the Area 2 headquarters, people could hear the screams. Everybody knew that this was going on. Did the media know? Do you know, do you have any awareness of, in your career, uh, maybe contacting the media, telling them about police violence, and then them not covering it? Well, we go all the way back to Hampton again, right. and where, where the four dailies were all calling it a shootout, and the only reason it, the narrative started to change was because a young reporter came to the apartment. We showed him the reality. He wrote an article, uh, and the Sun-Times editors buried it on the obituary pages. He quit, and that caused the chief editor of the Sun-Times to come down to the apartment uh, and to look at the scene uh, and to see that, in fact, we were right, that it was a shoot-in. And then the, the, the Sun-Times and the Daily News, the, the, the field uh, papers at that time, changed uh, their approach to the case. Um, so fast-forwarding to the torture cases, I think more than, uh, yes, the media knew about it, uh, to some limited degree, they covered it, uh, but Conroy's the first one to actually take it on, and he took it on in the reader. He thought that it was going to be a major, major exp uh, expose that would lead to some real, really fundamental change in, in, in approach to the media, and the media's approach was, well, uh, he's covered it, so we're not going to. And and he was made him completely cynical about about it. And the the book uh, chronicles how we helped to change that narrative. And some of the more independent uh, reporters, uh, such as Carol Marine, for example, at Channel Five, uh, Conroy, of course, a few other reporters started to listen to what we were saying, started to see the systemic nature of it, uh, and how that started to change the narrative of police torture in the city. 
In July 2006, when Cook County Special Prosecutor Edward Egan failed to indict Burge for perjury and instead issued a report after four years of special investigation of torture cases, you publicly criticized the special prosecutor's failure to indict and called the report a cover-up that whitewashed the role of Richard M. Daley and other high-ranking police and prosecutorial officials. Egan responded by saying, your main interest is making money. In fact, one of the people getting rich off of the police violence and torture cases is... Egan himself, the guy who claimed that you were doing it for money. You write, more than $7 million went to Egan and his co-author for their whitewash investigation and report. Who is getting rich off of police torture in this city? Are, are they, and are they politically connected and politically connected to who? Well, that's part of a broader uh, question right. even than, than just the police torture. Now, um, as of the writing, uh, finishing of the book, I had documented $140 million of taxpayers, Cook County and city taxpayers and state taxpayers had paid uh, for the torture scandal. And that was an incomplete number. I think the number gets close to $200 million. Who gets that money? Well, over 30 to $35 million of that went to pinstripe patronage, uh, to city lawyers uh, who defended Burge and Daly and um, the other officers who who committed torture. Another uh, $15 million has gone to, quote, special prosecutors such as Egan and Boyle and the new uh, reincarnation of special prosecutors, county prosecutors, uh, who defend in the criminal courts uh, the torture cases against men who are seeking their freedom based on the tortured confessions. So right there you have close to $50 million going to lawyers who defend the city, uh, the county, prosecutors uh, uh, against allegations and evidence of police torture. We have been speaking with the one and only Flint Taylor, author of The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. And thank you again for the copy of the book that you gave me um, that said that it's God's favorite book, Prove You Wrong. So <laughs> I really like that. And I was uh, really disappointed when I searched on the word Mertz in there and found out that it was the nickname for, for a guy that you defended on the street. Uh, Flint is one of the lawyers uh, for the families of slain Black Panthers leader uh, leaders, sorry, uh, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. He's represented many survivors of Chicago police torture over the past 30 years and has counseled with several illegal search and wrongful death cases brought against the Milwaukee Police Department. He's also done work in New Orleans and elsewhere. You can find out more about his organization, the People's Law Office, at peopleslawoffice.com. And you can follow the People's Law Office on Twitter at peopleslawchi. Which leads us to the question from hell, sir. The question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. So... I don't know what this relates to. I have no idea. I'm not implying anything. How good of a job has the Police Accountability Board done in holding police accountable? And should I be concerned about supporting, say, a former prosecutor who was on the board and what they might do if, I don't know, they become mayor? Okay. Lori <laughs> <laughs> Lightfoot, you might be implying? I, I didn't say that. <laughs> well, um, I think that it's interesting that we have two African-American women running um, for uh, mayor. I suppose that's a good thing, wouldn't you think, Uh, given the history of the torture machine (laughs) and the Democratic machine? 
Lori Lightfoot, um, I deposed her uh, after. Depose means taking uh, uh, testimony in a, in a civil case. Mm-hmm. Uh, after she left uh, being the head of the Office of Professional Standards. Um, she, when she was uh, the head of the Office of Professional Standards, the disciplinary agency at that time of the police department, mm-hmm. uh, she had attempted to uh, implement some reforms, um, reforms in dealing with repeater cops and actually trying to track who the bad guys were, so to speak, that repeatedly committed police violence and, and misconduct. Okay. She then was shot down by the union and some of the powers that be, the old old school leaders of the department. Uh, and that pro- and that program, like many of the predecessors uh, that attempted to uh, reform the department, went uh, in the trash bin of history. Um, she then became a, a lawyer at Mayor Brown uh, and had a pretty spotty record in terms of who she represented, uh, in terms of corporations, in terms of prosecutors who committed uh, crimes of uh, wrongful conviction. So I, I deposed her about the question. I wanted her to admit to the fact that she had done something good while she was at the police department, something that should have been implemented, but made the city look bad, right? Because she was overruled. Her name was on the documents. I sat here across from her the way you and I are sitting here today and for many hours questioned her about this. And she stonewalled me. Uh, she wouldn't admit to writing the documents that had her name name on it. She wouldn't uh, embrace the programs of reform that she had attempted to put into place years before, uh, but rather defended the city and the city's interest. We also know she represented the cops in the Jefferson Tap case. Uh, a very oh. very. Uh, Outrageous Awful. case where where some black businessmen were beaten by off-duty drunken cops, right. um, and you know this uh, she has a spotty record. I have to give her credit for what she's done in the past few years in stepping forward as the head of the police accountability task force and making some strong recommendations, and even having in the report that the police department is not only racist in its nature but has a code of silence. Those were findings that were important and are important in the fight against police brutality. So I guess people can change. We can hope that she uh, has changed. We have a lot of people uh, that I respect that are supporting her. Uh, But we have to remember from whence she came and uh, have some skepticism about uh, her being the outsider, mm-hmm. uh, which is so uh, is so, something that's so popular these days, right? In terms of uh, getting elected, right. starting with Trump. <laughs> right. So Victoria Law had this article in these Times this week, and she was talking about she was kind of comparing Lori Lightfoot to Kamala Harris, and right. she was saying, uh, you know, you should be skeptical of prosecutors who all of a sudden are saying that they're progressive. Is that? Do you think that's too much of a I'm not saying that I'm not trying to put words in her mouth or anything, but uh, do you think it is healthy to be skeptical of prosecutors when they join politics? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You have. I mean, skeptical is a is kind of a kind word for how I feel about prosecutors after my history of 50 years <laughs> of fighting the torture machine. Right. Um, and 
Where's the first prosecutor that came forward to talk about John Burge? We're still waiting for that prosecutor. There has never been one. I I mean, we at least had some anonymous cops who came forward. We had Frank Laverty who came forward. We had the black cops who came forward. I'm still waiting for that first prosecutor to come forward. And many of them, to this day, uh, still are in the Fox um, state's attorney's office, and they show up defending the men who are trying to get out now, decades later, based on tortured confessions. So... Yes, we have to be very skeptical. I, I, I was glad Kim Fox got elected. She's trying to change the culture. But she, like Harold Washington, the culture of, of police um, racism, for example, the culture in the state's attorney's office of wanting to prosecute, of the law and order idea uh, of the mass incarceration concept, you can't just change that by changing the, the leadership unless that leadership has the power and, and, and the... Uh, the energy and, and the commitment to change the entire culture of that particular organization, whether it be the police department or the prosecutor's office. We'll see if Laurie Lightfoot, who appears is going to win this, can change the culture, uh, particularly of the police department in terms of what we're talking about here um, or not. And uh, if history is any teacher, that's going to be a hell of a job. Good Lord, I'm in love with you, Flint. You are absolutely the best. Thank you so much for being on the show again. You know I'm going to annoy you for the rest of your life. You're prepared for that, right? I, I am, uh, <laughs> and I don't find it as an annoyance. Um, I, I, I enjoy being in your studio, even though the clock says it's uh, <laughs> 10 minutes past 2, and I wondered where all the time went uh, since I got here at 11. We'll have a working clock at our new studio, I promise you. And it's closer to home, so that exactly. will, So I may be by you and, and pester you. And it's downhill. So it's really easy. You there know, you, you can go. Get... Thank you, Flint. I really appreciate it. Love you're you're very welcome. Thank you so you much, really Flint. enjoyed it as usual. All right. Take care, Flint. I'm going to kill your mic now. There you go. Good Lord, I love that man. From the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become our pimp, support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. When you do, we will send you a gift you can pick out from our website. Again, this is hell.com. When you click on support, there's t-shirts and mugs and tote bags, that kind of stuff. Thanks this week goes to the tithing-like commitments of Adrienne. And thanks to Mark, who wants the recently redesigned This Is Hell t-shirt. And Travis, who wants the recently redesigned This Is Hell stainless steel coffee cup, a coffee mug which you got to check out. It's really cool. Thisishell.com. Click on support. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed more than ever. Prisons and our carceral state are sites of white supremacy on human growth hormone. It's not just steroids. It's human growth hormone. Prisons encourage racism, segregation, race-based gangs, and violence. And then they unleash those prisoners they've brutalized onto the world. We'll find out all about the white supremacy of the carceral state when we talk in a few to Colleen Hackett and Ben Turk, co-authors of Shifting Carceral Landscapes, Decarceration and the Reconfiguration of White Supremacy, their contribution to the collection Abolishing Carceral Society, which is put together by a group called The Abolition Collective, and we are featuring in a series of interviews here on This Is Hell. Let me go back into listener feedback for a second. 
God, again, Andy, thank you so much for the text files that of Beto O'Rourke's writing for uh, Cult of the Dead Cow back in the 1990s. I cannot thank you enough, Andy. If you didn't hear me talking about that already, you can go to the podcast shortly after our show, thisishell.com, and you can listen to the show in its entirety. Our next email to Chuck at thisishell.com is from Aaron in Staunton, Virginia. Aaron writes, hello, Chuck. Have you heard about the hikikomori? While they don't seem to be an outrageous menace like those damned incels, they may be some... There may be some bewildering factors in common that most folks haven't forced themselves to think about. Perhaps it's something like late-stage capitalism, and its inherently alienating feedback loops are to blame. Nah, couldn't be. By the way, thanks to This Is Hell, I have a better vocabulary for wondering about this kind of stuff. I searched the show's website and got no hit on Hikikomori. Japan Today and the Japan Times have a lot of coverage on these folks. Here's one of many stories, and here's another because it points to some of the experts on the subject. It's an excellent diving board into a rabbit hole. I don't know if I already emailed Alex about this yet. Maybe, maybe not. Thanks for all you do to help expand my mind every week. You're one of my favorite interviewers ever. Sincerely broke, Aaron. Now, I had no idea what hikikomori is, so I clicked on the two stories Aaron sent. And according to Japan Today, the hikikomori... That's a term uh, now almost as readily understood worldwide as in Japan. It refers to a wounded withdrawal from society, often to the cozy but cramped confines of one's childhood bedroom. Some people get over it and resume active life in the outside world. Others don't. It can drag on for years, for decades, for life. Meanwhile, the Japan Times article reports hikikomori first came to the attention of the general public in 1999 when a Nigerian man was arrested for keeping a teenage girl prisoner for nine months in his room. Though the case was atypical, it ended up representing many people's image of hikikomori as being dangerous sociopaths. So, on Adam's suggestion, this weekend, if you are looking for a rabbit hole to go down, Adam suggests the weird world of hikikomori. Okay, Alex, what have you been up to on social media? Okay, uh, we're running late, so I'll make this fast. That was pretty good, though, yesterday. Um... Brianna Joy Gray, who was almost a This Is Hell guest when she was working for Current Affairs, yeah. and then she started working for The Intercept, and now she is Bernie Sanders' press secretary. Oh, no kidding! Yes, she's Bernie Sanders' national press secretary, and she asked on Twitter, what's your favorite political podcast and why? And a ton of people recommended This Is Hell. Uh, Mal is bad, said, absolutely the best interviews you'll get to hear. Chuck is always prepared. He rarely, if ever, interrupts, and his roster of guests is phenomenal, so he doesn't shy away from introspection either. Uh. Also, Lentils underscore said, <laughs> no other show has challenged and enriched me as much as This Is Hell Radio. Conrazon said, because it's satire, quality AF, and has been at it since the 1990s. And, if I, and Matt R. Paul said, This Is Hell is hands down the most informative show for learning about how the world works. So tons of people were in her mentions say, uh, talking about This Is Hell and promoting the show. Uh, I really appreciate so it. How was, are we making more money? Well, so then uh, I wrote to her, uh, to Brianna, I wrote, I know our show doesn't have the audience of some of these bigger podcasts, and I know his schedule might be tight, but if there's any way to make it work, we would be honored, extremely honored, to have Senator Sanders contribute to our Patreon. So we might get that. We might get that. We might get that. Uh, Four dollars a month from Senator Sanders. At, at some point. I was. I was pretty proud of that. Um, 
Okay, we got to get across from All hell right. so I can get uh, Ben and Colleen on. Uh, you can rate this is hell on Facebook, and uh, after 194 respondents so far, we have the highest rating, five out of five stars. If you rate this is hell and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash this is hell radio, you'll we'll read your rating and comment on the air. You too can go to facebook.com/slash this is hell radio and give us five stars so I don't have to. And if you do, I will read your comment on the air. But right now, if you go to this is hell, or if you go to facebook.com/slash this is hell radio. You can answer this week's question from hell, which we're going to do right now. This week's question from hell is, what will ACAB, ACAB, All Cops Are Bastards, stand for after we abolish the police? What will ACAB stand for after we abolish the police? All replies right on air right now. This week's winner gets a book we just featured on this week's show, Flint Taylor's The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. Again, the question from hell is, what will ACAB stand for after we abolish the police? Go to to Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio right now. You still have a chance to win Flint's book. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from hell. Uh, Kimmy R. says via Twitter, call yourself ACAB. So that's going to be coming up more often. What? Dexter T said, what will ACAB stand for after we abolish the police? In the future, it will be an old folks blessing to remind us to destroy the cops in our head. Uh, Reverend G. Lou Sniffer said, another chilled alcoholic beverage, please. Oh, that's our friend Eat Farts 69. Yeah. Uh, Roz Boz, or Boz Roz says, all communists are broke. <laughs> Boz Roz. Yes. Exit post left said, all coppers abolished. Monetary Magic said, always coffee alongside breakfast. What will ACAB stand for after we abolish the police? Chewbacca814 says, All Chucks are still, still in uh, parentheses, uh, bitter, blind, broke. <laughs> uh, Gadzooks B says, Absolutely cordial anarchist brotherhood. <laughs> there's really a lot of really good ones here. Al Bernardo said, Alarm clocks are banned. Gabby F19 said, All cats are beautiful. <laughs> Chato Anachi said, all cops are Beto. <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? That was uh, Chato Anachi. Okay. Uh, Modern Marxism says, well, it'll stand for all cats are beautiful, of course. Mm-hmm. That was the Twitter ones. Okay, Facebook. What will ACAB stand for once all cops have been abolished? Craig H. says, all cannabis and beer. <laughs> Pammy H. said, they will always be bastards, even when they're not getting paid to do it anymore. Noah S. says, anyone craving a bong hit? <laughs> Lauren L. That H is in there, though. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Put bong hit as one word. Yeah, I, I, I spell it as one word. Uh, Warren L. says, always courteous and bright. <laughs> Jacob M. says, all cops are bye bye. <laughs> Eric T. says, all. <laughs> Eric, all Canadians are boring. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's that, that's my that's my second that's my second favorite one. It's very good. It's very good. Hey Joanne, are you listening? Uh, Muriel C says all cats are beautiful. <laughs> Nathaniel R says all convicts acquire books. Jason L says assist Chuck acquiring bud. <laughs> Who said that? Uh, that's Jason L. Okay. What will ACAB stand for once we abolish the cops? Zach A says anyone can accomplish beautifully. Uh. Luke S says all can acquire bread. <laughs> Jessica B, winner of last uh, week's, said, uh, "All caps are basic, in all caps." Kaylin R says a couple of them. She says, "According to this five-year plan, the next formulations are abolish cruelty at borders, mm-hmm. ask climatologists about betterment, okay. antagonize creditors and bourgeoisie, <laughs> allow tra- children critical beliefs, and augment courage and benevolence." Wow, who was that? 
Kalen R. Kalen, that's an amazing, amazing answer, but I'm not going to be able to write the whole thing down to repeat it later. So John M. says, all communists are brethren. <laughs> Paolo S. says, Alex and Chuck are beauties. <laughs> uh, here comes the best one. Abigail T. <laughs> wrote, adopt cats, abort babies. <laughs> oh, my God. James, adopt cats, abort babies. <laughs> wow, dude. James, James dude. H. said, all capitalists are bitches, especially without the cops to protect their wealth. Alexandra C. says, as cute as babies. Camilo P. says, always carry a banana. What will ACAB stand for after we abolish the police? Dan C. said, all capitalists are bastards. Astrid N. said, all crabs abandon beach. The cops are puking pollution. Simone T. said, alert, capitalism abolished belatedly. Shane M. said, and he wrote in a parentheses, sing like Julie Andrews, which I'm not going to do. A cab, a cab. Or Uber Lyft, these are ways to get around. Oof. Curly B said, all cops are broke. Sebastian M says, all cops are banished. <laughs> Chris D says, ass collector and butt. <laughs> what? Uh, Adam M says, all cows are burgers. <laughs> Abigail T also wrote, abolish capitalism, annihilate bourgeoisie. <laughs> Fabio L says, all children are better off. <laughs> Melissa H says, after capitalism, absolute bliss. Matt P. says, the name of my proctology practice, asses, culos, anuses, and butts. <laughs> D.B. said, all cats are beautiful. Jesus. People love cats over here. Uh, David T. says, after cops are abolished, ACAB will have two meanings, all children are beautiful, or all cannabinoids are banging. Ladio says, all cannibals are bitey. <laughs> <laughs> Garrett L. says, hey, can you hail ACAB? Lauren E. says, always cucumbers and bacon. Andrew T. says, it will describe how we will feel after the abolition of police, as chill as bros. But of course, then we'll have to abolish the bros. And finally, I think, refresh willing, Jeffy D. says, acne cream after brunch. <laughs> All right, so I really liked the really long one from Kaylin. That was great. The always carry a banana at the end there. That was a good one. Ladio saying, all cannibals are bitey. That's good. Uh, Abigail T., adopt cats and bort babies. Jesus criminy, that's a good one. Uh, I like Luke saying all can acquire bread because that's that's very spot on. Uh, Eric T saying all Canadians are boring, that's good. Uh, Baz Raz saying all commies are broke, that's a good one. But I gotta go with this because we keep talking about it today. Chato, you all are the winner. All cops are Beto. So there you go. That's the winner of this week's question from hell. Chato for saying ACAB, all cops are bastards, is going to be starting for, standing for, all cops are Beto. You have just won Flint Taylor's new book, The Torture Machine, Racism and Violence in Chicago. On next week's show, our prize will be Flint Taylor's The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. We got two copies of it, so we're going to be giving out both uh, giving out another copy of Flint's book next week during the question from hell. My response to this week's question from hell, what will ACAB stand for after we abolish the police? I think that's pretty obvious. And you know from the many times I've been sick on this show how I feel about kids. So in the future, ACAB will stand for all children are biohazards. 
thanks everyone for coming out to This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge this week, 2251 West Avon. Happens every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink. Get some free This Is Hell advertising stickers and free show-related books. Thanks to everyone who dropped by this week. Thanks to Brian, Nate. It was great to see both of you, and we hope to see more of you, too. As the weather warms up and the beer garden becomes more hospitable. It was also great to see the crew of our show, Rinaldo, Alex, uh, let's see, who else is there? Leo, our newest person to join our crew. Jonah, if you want to volunteer, by the way, on This Is Hell, email us at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. We are always looking for volunteers. Also, thanks for dropping by to Dave, John, Johnny, and, yep, yet another John. It's always good to see Shelly, Jordan, and Elliot. You, too, can join us at Carrie's, the bar downstairs from our studio, every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., 2251 West Devon. All right, let me go back into listener feedback, I think, for a second. Yep, we just got a guest coming here. Let me get over here. All right, um, let's see. The next email to Chuck at hell.com is from Mossy, who writes, Hey there, wondering if I could get the transcript for January 31st moment of truth. Jeff Dorchin squints at the future of disaster capitalism. I want to share it with some prisoner pen pals who would get a super big kick out of it. Thanks for all you do. I'm a fairly new listener and am digging it. Mossy. So we got Mossy in contact with Jeff and sure enough, he sent her the moment of truth she requested and she has now shared it with her prisoner pen pal. So thanks, Mossy. And thanks to Jeff. Our next email to Chuck at thisishell.com is from Peter, who tells us, Hey, love the show. You should consider interviewing Charles Eisenstein sometime. This, his most recent book was on climate change, but has written on a variety of topics. He has a unique, refreshing perspective that I really appreciate. Thanks, Peter. And uh, the book Peter uh, linked to is titled Climate, A New History, again by Charles Eisenstein. Here's a description flipping the script on climate change. Eisenstein makes a case for a wholesale reimagining of the framing, topics, and goals we employ in our journey to heal from ecological destruction. With research and insight, Charles Eisenstein details how the quantification of the natural world leads to a lack of integration and our fight mentality. With an entire chapter unpacking the climate change denier's point of view, he advocates for expanding our exclusive focus on carbon emissions to see the broader picture beyond our short-sighted and incomplete approach. It sounds great, Peter, and our listeners love when we talk climate change. So if anybody has guest suggestions relating to global warming or any topic, send them to chuck at thisishell.com. That's chuck at thisishell.com. And we're planning on doing a listener appreciation show uh, in the very near future. Uh, so please send all of your suggestions for guests on our show to Chuck at thisishell.com. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the epitome of white supremacy is the U.S. prison system, which actually encourages racism, racial violence, and the creation of race gangs that, when released, who knew, commit crimes. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin weaponizes Purim, we might get back into listener feedback. We'll also have to tell you what we've been up to on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we've, we'll have the question, or we already did the question, Mel. Uh, we want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online and what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell as well. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry.
truly revolting radio, this is hell. The carceral state in the U.S., our police and prison systems, are weapons of white supremacy launched at black America as a means of control. Prisons are racist. They encourage racism and segregation, as well as interracial violence. Here to tell us all about white supremacy's impact on our justice system, Colleen Hackett and Ben Turk are co-authors of Shifting Carceral Landscapes, Decarceration and the Reconfiguration of White Supremacy. Their contribution to the collection Abolishing Carceral Society, which is put together by a group called the Abolition Collective. And we are featuring in a series of interviews here on This Is Hell. Find out more about the collective at abolitionjournal.org. First, to you, Colleen, hello and welcome to This Is Hell. Hi there. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you on the show. And Ben, welcome to This Is Hell. Hi, thank you. So let's start with you, Colleen. Uh, you two write that the prison state in the United States is undergoing yet another reconfiguration under a combination of popular pressure, fiscal limitations, and stubbornly ungovernable populations. The system of mass incarceration is widely understood as unsustainable in the current form. This critical understanding has gained the attention of policymakers and political elites who have adopted the cause of decarceration, the top-down goals, priorities, and framings of these reformers, depart significantly and problematically from the decarceration movements that precede them. How are they problematically departing from the decarceration movements that uh, preceded them? What are they not learning from past decarceration movements? Sure. Uh, well, in the past 40 years, I mean, we've seen a dramatic rise in mass incarceration, which I'm sure many people are already aware of. Um, on average, we've seen, you know, a 600 percent um, increase. So it's just, just huge um, sort of impact on uh, primarily communities of color and also marginalized poor communities. And um, as state budgets and federal budgets continue to try to, you know, uphold this infrastructure and maintain, you know, the rising costs of a geriatric incarcerated population and a high needs um, prisoner population. Now we're seeing the state trying to adopt uh, criminal justice reforms to sort of, you know, mitigate uh, the financial costs of, again, uh, mass incarceration. And so ultimately what we are seeing is this sort of uh, shift incarcerality, um, a carcerality that is basically pushed into communities, whether we see, you know, house arrest um, as opposed to a jail sentence, or whether we see, um, you know, a probation sentence as opposed to a prison term. There's lots of different ways this actually manifests, um, but the state um, is still exercising control that is deeply rooted in white supremacy. And what they are not learning from grassroots efforts, grassroots efforts focus on, okay, what is actually um, the root cause of mass incarceration, of racialized violence, right? And that goes back a long, 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 long way into our history of uh, genocide and of racialized control, Jim Crow laws, et cetera. Ben... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say quickly, these decarceration efforts um, are not centered on how do we reach uh, equality and liberation 
for these communities who have been impacted for decades. That was a spectacular answer to our first question, Colleen. Thank you very much. Uh, Ben, you write, mainstream Democrats as well as hardcore conservatives have come together in a much lauded bipartisan coalition to reform mass incarceration. So some Democrats might think that sounds great, but you continue, arch conservatives like Newt Gingrich and the Koch brothers contend with the high cost of prisons that burden state and federal budgets. Well, Democrats like Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders frame their discontent with mass incarceration and especially privatized prisons as unjust, but emphasize the importance of strategic coalition with fiscal conservatives while adding a flavor of pandering to their black and Latinx constituencies. If mass incarceration was affordable, (laughs) would it continue? Is this more about the bottom line or people's lives? Is this kind of reform? Well, let's just let's just focus on that right now. If this was affordable, would the mass incarceration simply continue ad nauseum? Yeah, I mean, the the shift that we're seeing from from incarceration in prisons to uh, e-carceration with ankle shackles or uh, mass supervision with the use of probation and you know, increasing reliance on probation and parole, those are still forms of, carcer- of, of, of incarceration. So these reforms that we're talking about, even though they call themselves um, decarceration and they claim to be addressing mass incarceration, they're not undoing it. They're just transforming it to mass supervision and incarceration in your home or your neighborhood while you're still reporting to, you know, an authority who is supervising you and you do not have full citizenship status and the government is able to violate um, your basic civil rights and human rights. Uh, Part of what goes on in prison is that prisoners don't have uh, the same legal and citizenship status that other people do. Um, And that will continue under, you know, a situation of mass supervision. instead of a situation of mass prisons. So it seems that, the, like you're saying, the priority is on saving money and finding a more efficient way of continuing the same system of racialized control um, that this country was founded on. Well, let me just follow up on that, Ben. So is the market correcting mass incarceration where democracy could not? Can we thank capitalism for correcting mass incarceration? I mean, it's not a co- real correction. Um, I think you know, capitalism is the is a big part of what drives incarceration and creates the surplus populations that um, that try to that the state and and the democratic state tries to manage through criminalization and incarceration. Um, and so, if there if there weren't you know a massive unemployed people, which the capitalist labor market requires in order to keep wages low and profits high, then we wouldn't see this surplus population um, that need to be managed and controlled through police and prison systems. Colleen, you and Ben write that many in the pre-existing decarceration movement applaud this shift, welcoming the involvement of policymakers and rightfully feeling validated on their work by these small steps toward justice. Others are more hesitant, raising critiques of the elites and warning against collaboration with forces that strengthen and reinforce carceral logics. How might this desire for change in mass incarceration end up leading to reinforcing carceral logics? Because at times I have heard critics unknowingly without 
realizing unwittingly uh, reinforcing logics that they end up opposing. So how might this desire for change in mass incarceration lead to reinforcing carceral logics? And do you think that those that's intended or it's an unintended consequence? Sure. Um, well, to first answer that very last question, uh, we argue that white supremacy is intentional. It's an intentional um, logic that is built into our democratic order and into the prison system itself. And so uh, we have to, you know, totally undo that um, in order to reach any sort of change. And we have to intentionally enact that social change um, to counteract this rationalized white supremacy. Um, However, in order to, um, you know, in order to affect change, I think that we need to start to understand how there's been this uh, long, you know, decades, centuries, uh, basically, effort to disinvest in certain communities at the same time that we have been um, entrenching ourselves into mass imprisonment. And so while the state is sort of, you know, moving towards decarceration and criminal justice reform, we have to think about how we can counteract that by Um, you know, putting more fuel, energy, um, and even state dollars, as provocative as that might be, into um, the kinds of, you know, infrastructure that we've been depriving marginalized communities um, for so long. Ben, you write, the system of carcerality in the United States is one that extends beyond the prison walls. We borrow a definition of the carceral from philosopher Michel Foucault that refers to an institution, a system, or a body of knowledge that renders people as objects and exercises control over and through them. So, Ben, how does our carceral society affect even those who have been, who've never been to prison, who have never known anyone who has gone to prison? How does our carceral society affect even the unincarcerated and the never incarcerated or having any contact with incarceration? Yeah, I mean, I think it it looms as a threat over all of us. It is a way to put coercive state violence behind a particular set of social norms, um, which include white supremacy, include patriarchy, include um, classism, and and just like this whole variety of um, different things that we consider normal or acceptable behavior. And, um, and so people who want to act outside of that, uh, you know, are, know that they are not only defying, you know, social normal, you know, social pressures, but um, they're also risking crossing the, um, the, the line of the state. There are, there are so many laws in place um, that, are, that are largely not enforced and that are only enforced against marginalized populations um, and people who are adopting um, antisocial behavior. And so when you step outside of um, the normative structures, whether that's in your gender presentation, your um, cultural symbols and signifiers and things like that, you are putting yourself at risk of falling into the targets of the system that is set up with so many laws and so many regulations that it could target anyone. Um, and, and so the, and the reason this comes back to white supremacy is that it so disproportionately targets, you know, certain um, black and brown communities, particularly in cities. 
Colleen, uh, you write, although the much-lauded Civil Rights Act inspired hope among many that the country might move toward racial equality, it is now clear that the legislation forced white supremacy to shift and to become more subtle in effect. Do you think that was intentional within the Civil Rights Act? Did the concession, was the bipartisanism that got the legislation passed, was the concession that was made to make it vulnerable to white supremacy? I, I think in some parts, some parts, yes. Um, and in other ways, no. Um, you know, I think that the gaze of whiteness um, was directing the Civil Rights Act the entire time. Of course, we had amazing black resistance. We had amazing um, resistance, you know, that we witnessed among many different kinds of communities supporting uh, these reform efforts. However, they were focused on um, tweaking the system rather than entirely uprooting and, and, you know, changing the system drastically. And so because this sort of, you know, white elitist power structure was influencing this legislation um, the entire time, you know, writing it, uh, enacting it, voting on it, etc., um, we see that a lot of the gestures were symbolic, um, and, and some of them actually obviously changed policy. They ended segregation laws. You know, they, there were substantial changes made, and I, I want to applaud those and not minimize those. Uh, however, they, there's sort of a glass ceiling, <laughs> so to speak, on all of those efforts, um, not allowing full integration and appeasing um, much of the anger of the Black community in the moment rather than looking at a extremely long-term solution. So as these civil rights um, policies were enacted, um, people were appeased for the most part. Uh, some weren't, of course. Then we see that the power structure forms, or um, I'm sorry, it morphs, right? And it reshapes and then again accommodates uh, capitalist interests, white supremacist interests, um, in a more neoliberal sort of form. Uh, Colleen, let me follow up on that, because uh, a couple weeks ago we were talking to another contributor to your book, uh, Sijana uh, K. Reddy, and she was talking about how only tweaking a system, only reforming the system, reinforces the system that you're against from the beginning, the, that institution itself. So does, re, does prison reform lead to reinforcing a prison system that you oppose? It absolutely does, yes. Now, we argue in our paper that there is room for um, abolitionists to endorse certain reforms. So though that seems like a contradiction, um, I'll first explain that the prison system is designed to disrupt communities. It is designed to enact racialized social control and to keep um, poor uh, communities of color at the bottom, you know, end of the social strata. And so because of that, we know that we don't need the system. We shouldn't have the system. And to accommodate this and to tweak it is only going to mean, um, you know, a longer road of, uh, of marginalization and of disenfranchisement. But until we reach this sort of, you know, destruction, abolition um, that we are seeking, 
we do unfortunately have to embrace some reforms, but again, we need to understand the longer vision and to not have um, a case of social amnesia, which I think a lot of our elite politicians do have. So we need to understand that though we might back a certain reform that you know helps alleviate harm as a form of harm reduction, uh, we need to know that you know ten years from now we don't want the system to exist. So um, it's sort of you know understanding that the contradiction there actually can. Um, exist while we make meaningful change. Ben, you and Colleen write that recent adjustments by new Democrat elites and the bipartisan coalition on mass incarceration maintain that entrenchment, even while nominally repealing the uh, policies and rhetorically indicating sweeping reversals to trends in the criminal legal system. If reform is retrenchment in disguise, why is it so difficult to see through that disguise? Because you also talk about the Obama administration was lauded for its justice reforms, including releasing as many as 15,000 drug offenders. But you also write that, you know, uh, these actions are relevant, but only for about a sliver of the prison population. So is if reform is just retrenchment in disguise, why is it so difficult to see through that disguise? I think it is very difficult because, you know, there's there's not a, a unified um, group of us. We we don't, like the people who are in prison or are, are resisting on behalf of prisoners don't have a, a monolithic perspective or point of view. Uh, we wrote this article, you know, during the Obama administration, and uh, it was published after Trump was elected. And since it was published, we saw the um, the First Step Act passed. And when that passed, there were a lot of debates within the community and the organizers that I work with, um, people who are in federal prison who, because of that law, are going to get released, who are saying, you know, we should support it. And then other people who are working to resist uh, mass supervision who are saying this is expanding, um, you know, the, the amount of control and the number of people who are going to be on paper and under that, under that supervision. So there was a lot of debate within about, you know, how to accept the reforms and whether or not the, like, loopholes and the negative aspects that always get included in these laws are worth the benefits that come out of them. And I think a lot of times um, these reform efforts are about breaking us up and setting us against each other and and saying that, like, this group of prisoners or this group of directly affected people um, is worthy of citizenship rights or worthy of, of um, you know, they're deserving of, you know, the, the benefits of society. Um, but that always means that the people who are left behind become less worthy and easier to marginalize and easier to dehumanize. And so that's what we always need to be careful of is the way that these reform movements that come from the top are designed to set people against each other and to continue to create a class of people who are utterly undeserving, who are considered incorrigible, um, and who can be abused and uh, can take on all of the harm that is inevitably built into our economic structure. Colleen, you and Ben write the the elitist decarceration measures, along with the rhetoric and actions of mainstream politicians, further concretize the concretize the 
moralistic division between nonviolent and violent offenders. The repeated calls of salvation for nonviolent drug offenders mobilized public notions of and sentiments about deservedness and dangerous others, codes that carry both racialized and classed meanings since African-Americans are convicted on violent offenses at higher rates than whites. Colleen, why shouldn't we distinguish between the two as one may, one of the two may oppose a greater safety risk, a greater security risk? And it's not fair to a person who sells dime bags of weed with someone who has committed a more heinous crime like murder. So can you avoid reinforcing sentiments of deservedness and dangerous others while also not equating dealing weed with killing people? Or is that the slippery slope? And if it is, where does that slippery slope bottom out? Right. I think we have a lot of room to hold um, many messy truths at the same time. And unfortunately, uh, in political rhetoric, um, it's so easy to slip into binary uh, thinking, good, bad, long, right, violent, nonviolent. Um, and we have to consider the many different manifestations of violence, right? Um, you mentioned murder. That is a serious concern in this country. Uh, we do experience higher murder rates than other Western industrialized nations. Um, however, the bulk of violent crime are not that, right? So let's start there. I mean, the bulk of violent crimes are perhaps uh, committing a burglary with a firearm on your person, whether or not that firearm was in your hand pointed at someone um, or or whatever. So, you know, just by having a firearm, you are then classified as violent. Um, just by being, a, you know, classified by the police as being affiliated with a gang while you are committing a crime, you are then classified as violent. So there's many different ways in which we lump people into this category, which then renders them unworthy, disposable, and um, worthy of being sent away for years and years, decades, and life in many cases. So, um, you know, I think just understanding the degrees of violence in which we're talking about will help demystify this and help people understand that there are many ways to deal with this. We are a violent nation, and one of the things that we argue is that the way in which we target individuals who may have committed one act of violence in their lifetime is entirely disproportionate to how we deal with, um, you know, the polluting of the Flint River, which has put many people's lives um, in at risk, or, um, you know, war crimes and crimes of the state that actually have a, a much larger scope. So then, and so I think, I was just going to say to you, what explains why we equate economic violence with physical violence when economic violence can have uh, far more wide-ranging impact. Right, exactly. Um, and, and also, too, when we are thinking about um, some of the more individual crimes that might be, you know, worthy of a, a second look or a third look, um, you know, crimes that involve sexual violence or murder, um, I think that, you know, those things are actually reformable. And the more that we um, attempt to address that, the more that we can take a preventative step um, towards alleviating the problem of violence in our society. Because unfortunately, as it stands right now, we have not escaped this legacy. 
Ben, you and Colleen write rehabilitation programs in prisons, largely attempt to teach ex-prisoners, or even after prison, uh, attempt to teach ex-prisoners how to accommodate themselves to an unjust social order. To graduate from a rehabilitation program has less to do with being changed or rehabilitated and more to do with successfully navigating programmatic norms and developing gestures and performances of remorse, of compliance, of respectability and deservedness that might unlock access to the benefits of lower middle class life. Is it fair to say then that rehabilitation programs are teaching ex-prisoners how to be white? That's one very, like how to be white and middle class, um, I think is, is important how to, and there's, I've, I've encountered rehabilitation programs and Colleen knows a lot more about this. This is what she did her um, doctoral research on, but there's these programs that, that seem to believe that by teaching a poor black family, the importance of uh, mowing their lawns and keeping their, their frontage up and like, uh, or, you know, dressing right and things like that will transform them into uh, correct acting, um, you know, pro-social behaviors or something like that. And it, it's false. I've talked to the people who actually run these programs and say, yeah, that's what we were given as a curriculum, but it doesn't work at all. And we have to deviate from it and actually address what's really going on with people, which is like trauma and histories of abuse. And, um, and also just like the deprivation of their basic material needs. Um, but within this system of racialized capitalism, that can never be the solution. Uh, you know, we we always, uh, you know, the the system will always say it is the person who is suffering who is at fault, and they just need to change their behavior and lift themselves up um, instead of looking at the first step to solving addiction is getting people's basic material needs met. met. The, the solution to host houselessness is to give people home. Um, and so that I think we are looking at for a like larger shift um, that, and it, and it also, it ends up costing less money. It's more expensive to incarcerate people than to educate them. It's more expensive to run police systems on neighborhoods than to, you know, give block grants and material support directly to that neighborhood. So I think, like, there is an investment in um, continuing to blame the, the victims and the, the survivors of, of this economic violence uh, instead of changing the fundamental problem. Uh, Colleen, you and Ben write that one of the current penal alterations adopted by prisons is known as the tier system. And you describe how they have brainwashing, sensory deprivation and misuse of drug therapy are some of the methods used to stress test, harass and break prisoners. This project necessitates a complex gradation of privilege uh, level levels for prisoners to step down through. Recently, that gradation program has uh, grown more sophisticated, often in response to prison rebellions. This is really, really disturbing. Um, Brainwashing, sensory deprivation, misuse of drug therapy to break prisoners. Is this Abu Ghraib come home, Colleen? I don't understand. How can we allow for this kind of what seems like torture? Right. Um, 
Well, I think that the prison system operates um, in a lot of obscurity and uh, privacy and um, secrecy. So the public, um, some of the public might actually endorse this and might actually think, you know, if you're in prison, you deserve it. Um, But I think that actually that there's a sizable um, part of the population that just isn't aware or is just coming to an awareness of the extent of the violence that is happening. And it it absolutely is um, to the extent of Abu Ghraib in, in many situations. And it is a calculated program um, that has the consequence of racially sorting people and sorting people based on levels of dangerousness. Now, on the surface level, you might actually, you know, endorse this. Um, going back to your example, you know, I think it's fair to say, should we um, perhaps house low-level nonviolent drug offenders um, with murderers? And shouldn't we assess um, where people's behavioral um, sort of assessments are? Perhaps. Um, however, what is ultimately happening is that the prison system targets Um, those prisoners who speak out against the prison, ultimately much of the resistance that we see inside is a resistance to terror and to authoritarian discipline um, that comes in many arbitrary forms, right? Um, One day you might be allowed to trade books with another prisoner and the next day it is a, a punishable offense that might lead you to administrative segregation, which is now the term that many states are using for solitary confinement right now that we're seeing this shift, quote unquote, a shift away from solitary confinement. States are coming up with new verbiage um, to, to name their isolation cells. And so what we're seeing is a um, prison within a prison and an incarceration, reincarceration of uh, resistant prisoners who are trying to bring to light the um, sorts of you know, um, terroristic rituals that are being performed against them. We have been speaking with Colleen Hackett and Ben Turk, co-authors of uh, Shifting Carceral Landscapes, Decarceration and the Reconfiguration of White Supremacy, their contribution to the collection Abolishing Carceral Society, which is put together by a group called the Abolition Collective. And you can find out more about the collective at abolitionjournal.org. You can find out more about Unstoppable, a publication that Colleen works for, at unstoppable.noblogs.org. You can find out more about Colleen at colleenhackett.com. And you also work for The Fire Inside, as does Ben, and you can find out more about that at fireinside.noblogs.org. One last question for each of you. And our final question for all of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Let's start with you, Ben. Uh, You talk about in your essay, which is absolutely amazing, and all of our listeners should check it out. You talk about this purposeful division and segregation along racial lines within prisons and how prisons do everything they can to make certain that there isn't a solidarity between races. You write white supremacist institutions such as prisons cannot tolerate the solidarity and punitively lock down prisoners, including the white Aryan affiliated prisoners. In response, they prefer prisoners to remain divided and to blame each other and hope that by ratcheting up the torture, isolation and stressful control systems, they will break prisoners unity and return to a status quo of tension and violence across racial division rather than coordination. So Ben, 
Do prisons promote race wars within their walls and racism in prisoners after they end their sentences? Uh, absolutely. It is. It's a, and, and even beyond race, it also promotes um, like gender uh, expectations and rigid divisions um, between and like, you know, this idea of toxic masculinity is reinforced and required by the carceral system and then exported out to society. Um, and so, yes, definitely it is a place is it's like a crucible in which people are pushed and driven into, um, well, first they're stripped of their identity, and then they're forced to try to reassert their identity in different ways, and um, and, and divisions like come from that uh, mechanism being operated on people. And then as, you know, the vast majority of people in prison are coming out someday, and so after putting that trauma and that, that uh, system, putting them through that system that come out with that brokenness and carry it into society. So it's definitely a reinforcement of some of the most toxic forms of uh, white supremacy and racial division. And that brings us to the question from hell for you, Colleen. You write, the culture of manufactured racialized violence is exported to the streets through carceral identities adopted by some prisoners when they return to society. The release of extremist Aryan prisoners directly produces white supremacist violence, boosting the ranks of neo-Nazi and white supremacist organizations, as well as isolated incidents of racial terror. So, Colleen, how responsible are prisons for not only crimes, but even possibly the resurgence of fascism in the United States? I would say it's incredibly responsible for that. Um, what we have seen, I mean, in the research, but also anecdotally, um, is this, you know, first off, in prison, these are highly violent um, conditions. And, you know, just like Ben said, people, especially in men's prisons, um, are sort of forced to find a gang or to find a group that they have to affiliate with in order to get that protection. Um, and so it's a survival mechanism for some. Um, that's not to paint a sympathetic lens onto white supremacists and, you know, um, people who belong to the Aryan nation, but rather, you know, it is a product of the prison environment. And since 98% of our prison population will be returning to the streets, I mean, we see this um, link between prisons and the community. And much of the focus has been on uh, the connection between the quote-unquote ghetto or communities of color in the prison. But we also have to think about that connection um, with white racists. Um, and so unfortunately, you know, we see uh, many people, many white uh, men, especially with criminal records, um, who are part of these organizations, whether or not they are just ideologically um, aligned and they visit some websites and promote this in their interpersonal lives, or some of them are actually rank-and-file members of these organizations. Um, and so this is, you know, an absolute problem, and prisons are uh, just one piece that we should be blaming. Colleen and Ben, I really appreciate you both being on the show this week. Um, the, you, we're going to continue featuring the book that you have contributed to, Abolishing Carceral Society, which is put together by a group called the Abolition Collective. 
that people can find out more about at abolitionjournal.org. We're going to continue these conversations into the future. And you can uh, find out more about Ben uh, by going to, let's see. Oh, you can go to one of the organizations that he belongs to. He belongs to the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. You can find out more by going to incarceratedworkers.org. And you can find out more about Colleen, again, at colleenhackett.com. Thank you both so much for being on the show this week. I'm really glad that I got to have you guys on the show as part of this ongoing series. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. This is Hell, where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a dumbass business model. Stupidest thing I'm getting During the moment of truth in a couple of minutes, Jeff Dorchin weaponizes Purim. Speaking of our horrible business model where we stupidly put people before profits, on Patreon.com slash this is hell, Patreon.com slash this is hell, I continued my ranting and raving about democracy and happiness and the pursuit of happiness and how democracy is supposed to make us feel and how whatever this is we are living inside, it doesn't feel like that kind of happy democracy we are promised. So if you heard my monologue earlier today on what's so great about hate, you'll want to hear my monologue on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell in the pursuit of happiness, which for our society is going about as well as a hamster on a treadmill. Then we shared our latest chapter in our exclusive Patreon-only series, our ongoing series in oral history of the Iraq wars that happened here on This Is Hell, our July 19, 2008 interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter Russell Carollo. Russell had just written the Sacramento Bee series, Suspect Stories, uh, Suspect Soldiers, which followed the story of 16 Iraq-era soldiers and Marines who ran into trouble with the law and or the military. Some had trouble histories before they joined the service, while others carried that trouble through their service and back into civilian life. So yes, the war comes home on Patreon, and it sucks too. Special thanks this week for joining us on Patreon goes to Lauren, Sam, and Lapo. Thanks for joining us on Patreon this week. We now have 337 subscribers to our Patreon podcast, and we need a lot more. A lot. A lot. You can help get us closer to our goal of getting a lot more Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell on next week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. I don't know what I'll be talking about yet, but we will be sharing, you know, I might be talking about respect and dignity. I don't know why that might come up. Anyway, uh, we will be sharing our March twenty, our May 25th, 2013 conversation with Jacobin founding editor Bhaskar Sankara, who talked to us about his letter to the nation, that is in the magazine, from a young radical. Liberalism, including much of what's published in this magazine, seems well-intentioned, but inadequate. The solutions lie in the re-emergence of American radicalism. Yep, six years ago, we were already talking to the people who would shake up the left the staff at Jacobin. But you can only hear that by going to patreon.com slash this is hell. We got some people to thank. Got some stuff to do. This is hell. You're home for futilitarian content. Alex, I know you have FFA on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Esther is Antifa. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I like Purim. Purim is the Jewish carnival or Mardi Gras. 
It celebrates the story of Esther, who saved the Jews from destruction during the Babylonian captivity. The biblical story was embellished in some Agadot or Talmudic stories and later apocryphal legends and early medieval fan fiction. The Targum Esther or Targum Shani from about the 4th century CE and the Targum Yerushalmi really go to town in their elaborations on the tale. They expand the Megillah the way Spike Jones took Where the Wild Things Are, a 38-page book that's mostly pictures, and turned it into a two-hour horror movie that was basically The Revenant meets H.R. Puffin stuff. I drew most of my information from Volume 4 of Lewis Ginsburg's seven-volume masterpiece of lore gathering, The Legends of the Jews. Part of the celebration of Purim is the telling of the story, and I shall be hitting some of the highlights. King Ahasuerus, of whom there is no historical record, ruled all the world from Ethiopia to India, so says the Megillah. Targums say that before the events of the story, the king sent several armies out to conquer India. Mordecai, his Jewish advisor, had a battalion. Haman, one of his Amalek advisors, had a battalion. Various other commanders had battalions, and each commander had a war chest. And Haman, like a jerk, squandered his war chest on chicken tikka masala and mango lassies. So when he couldn't pay his troops, he goes begging the Mordecai, and Mordecai says, Can't help you, bruh. But Haman begs so pitifully, Mordecai says, okay, but you have to agree to be my slave for the remainder of the India campaign. Haman agreed, and they wrote up a contract, but they didn't have any papers, so they wrote it on Mordecai's knee. Mordecai apparently had it tattooed on his knee, because even years later, to get on Haman's nerves, every time he'd pass by Haman in the palace or in the street, he'd lift up his knee in a very silly walk and point to it so Haman could see this shameful reminder of his stupidity. And Mordecai would go, hey, man, how you doing? This may be the root of Haman's grudge against Mordecai and the Jews. I'm not making this up. Someone else made this up about 1,600 years ago. Targum person, Targum scribe. What should we call him? T-something in the manner of Harold Bloom. T-bone. Yeah. More details in the expanded version. King Ahasuerus throws a big party for everyone. Remember, the Persians and Medes were heathen trash, just really low class. And one of the nights of the party, Ahasuerus is totally bombed and like, ah, you want to talk about the hottest woman? My wife is so the hottest woman. Vashti, show us your tits, show us your coochie, shake your moneymaker. But Queen Vashti refuses, not out of any sense of modesty, Come on, she's a heathen. She'd be more than happy to flash her goodies at a party. No, according to T-Bone, God gave Vashti a full-body rash. That's why she wouldn't strip. And Ahasuerus didn't just spurn her, he had her executed. That's in the fan fiction version, the Targums. Some have reclaimed the Esther story for female empowerment, and I applaud that. These stories belong to those who tell them. But there's a beauty contest for virgins for the king to pick his next wife, and I find that problematic. Here, T-Bone steps up. According to the Targums, Esther, Mordecai's niece, wasn't shallowly beautiful in the conventional sense. In fact, at the time she was brought before Ahasuerus, she was 75 years old, according to T-Bone. She was just brimming with grace. That was the attraction, her amazing grace. 
Although T-Bone does say that her good looks held on well into her dotage. We don't know how the biblical people lived so long. They were on the Mediterranean diet. T-Bone says Esther never had to do the nasty with the king. Every night, an angel came down in the form of Esther and took that bullet for her. They could have called the book The 75-Year-Old Virgin. Esther keeps secret that she's Mordecai's niece and that she's Jewish. And really, it never came up in conversation. Shushan, the city where all this takes place and for which there is also no historical record, is a very cosmopolitan place full of Zoroastrians and animists and Mithraites and Greeks, I assume, and the king didn't care what she was as long as she was attractive. The Megillah loves to dwell on the comeuppance Haman and his family and all Jew haters got for being dicks. T-Bone takes that further. It's the most unprogressive thing about the Esther story, and especially its later versions. Make sure your enemies are as humiliated as possible before you destroy them utterly. I'm not against this. I'm just saying it's not Rabbi Hillel standing on one leg saying, do not do to others what you would not appreciate someone else doing to you. That is the whole of the law. Apparently, eh, not the whole of the law. First, God has Ahasuerus raise Haman to the office of highest advisor. No one knows why. Mordecai had earlier exposed a plot to poison the king, but he got nothing. And somehow, Haman got all these rewards. It's a little like when God hardened Pharaoh's heart in Egypt. It's a setup for the great fall of the antagonist. God's just not very subtle or clever with the foreshadowing. But fall he does. Haman convinces the king to declare that all the Jews of the whole land be destroyed. And apparently there's the usual kind of widespread Jew hatred there and in the provinces and all the fascists are getting their cudgels ready. The Jews cry out unto heaven. God says to Moses, what is with all those sheeps weeping and wailing? Moses, always a straight man, says, those aren't sheep, you idiot. Those are the children of Israel. Oh, says God, feigning surprise. Well, that simply won't do, will it? It all starts to come apart when King Ahasuerus can't sleep one night. T-Bone has an angel toss him out of bed 365 times. So the king has his royal readers read back the records of goings-on about Shushan in the past few years and discovers that Mordecai was never rewarded for saving the life of the king. That's why he couldn't sleep. The next morning, Ahasuerus calls in Haman, his top advisor, and says, how should we celebrate he whom the king delights to honor? And egotistical narcissistic Haman, thinking the king means him, says, oh, have him dressed in your finest coronation purples and your most gigantic but comfortable crown, and let him carry that stick with all the jewels on it, and have him mounted on your mightiest, sexiest war steed, and led through the streets by one of the chamberlains or whatever, who shall herald him thus? Behold the one whom the king delights to honor. And the king says, that's great. Go do all that stuff for Mordecai. Next bit is a little slapstick, and I believe it appears in a 16th century play, the earliest existing full-length play in Yiddish, in a tradition of Purimspiel called the Ahasuerus Spiel. Haman's like, Mordecai? I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank. Who is that? The king says, Mordecai the Jew. Haman's like, there must be 600 Mordecai the Jews in Shushan. There are six on my block. The king says, Mordecai, who sits in the king's gate. Haman says, there are 18 gates to the city. Can you be more specific? The king says, Mordecai, 
who sits four seats to your left in the council chambers. Haman says, Oh, that Mordecai. Why didn't you say so? So Haman has to bathe and shave Mordecai, dress him in all that great garb, let Mordecai use him as a step stool to get on the royal steed, and lead him, resplendent in the king's best raiment, through town, announcing like a common herald, Behold how the king honors he whom the king delights to honor. In the original, Haman's daughter sees her father thus humiliated, and when she does, she collapses. The whole Haman family was in on this, and they thought the day was going to go completely different. But T-Bone was not content with a collapsing daughter. No, she sees the procession down below, looking out from an upper story window, and thinking it's her father on horseback and the hated Jew Mordecai leading his horse through town, she dumps a chalice of poo on him from the window. Why a chalice? Why not a bucket? Because these people are heathen trash. They don't know how to treat fine dinnerware. Anyway, she sees that she's just dumped excrement on her own father's head, leaps from the window and goes splat on the pavement and dies right at Haman's feet. Meanwhile, Esther tells Ahasuerus she's a Jew and that Haman is a brute and a no-goodnik and a perv and some angels come down and disguise themselves as Haman's ten sons and chop down some precious trees in the royal orchard so they get in trouble. Haman and all his sons, says T-Bone, are crucified on one gigantic cross made of some tree that really wants to be used that way. But the king can't rescind the order to kill all the Jews because it was a command given with the royal seal. But he allows the Jews to prepare and fight back. And they kill all the proud boys and incels and other alt-right scum of Shushan and the surrounding environs. The Megillah delights in reporting how many hundreds of thousands of Jew haters are killed and the Targums even more so. Which is good. When we laugh at that video of Richard Spencer getting punched in the face or that Hungarian fascist dying of a heart attack, heart attack during his speech, and some candy-ass centrist says, if we mock their pain, we're no different from them. You just tell them the God of Sarah, Rachel, Judith, and Esther is on your side. Feminism is anti-fascist. Judaism ought to be feminist and anti-fascist. Our milk of human kindness need not extend to those who would facilitate policies promoting genocide, especially when they have attained high positions in government like Steve Bannon, Stephen Miller, Sebastian Gorka, and of course the biggest, most undeserving dick of them all, who somehow rose to ridiculously high office, that lumpy old twat, Haman. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. All right, Jeffy, stay beautiful. We're up against the clock. That was amazing. That was oh. awesome. Because I thought Perum was a brand of laundry detergent. So I really appreciate you clearing <laughs> that up for me. All right. All right, Jeffy. Stay beautiful. Glad to help. You too. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell. The best way for you to get the good word out about this is hell is to share the entire show or individual re- interviews or correspondence reports. We really appreciate it when you do. Thanks this week. Goes to, for sharing, Howard, Mission Anarchism, Jan, the ton of people who shared our interview with Roar Magazine founder Jerome Roos on how financial power has usurped government power in our world today. Thanks to Pete, Jeff, Jeremy, Stephen, Mutiny on Spaceship, Earth, Tom, Rob, Maria, Julie, Astrid, Randell, Nick, Metis, and Johnny. Also, thanks for sharing to Jeff with 1F, all of you who shared our interview on what's really happening in Venezuela with Lucas Kerner, including Umer... Stephen N., Thorisho, 
Micah, Andrew, John, Cedric, Angela, Counterpunch, Friends and Supporters, and the United States of Africa, as well as Dan. Finally, thanks to Jesse and Gorilla Gramophonics for sharing. Thanks to everyone for sharing This Is Hell, however you share our show online. Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, which happen every Wednesday night from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink, get some free This Is Hell advertising stickers and free show-related books. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry. Alex, do you have any big book for next week? Hey, I've got Andrew Fisher to talk about his book, Poverty as Ideology, Rescuing oh, Social Justice from the Global Development Agenda. And also, Cinzia Aruza will be on to talk about her book, Feminism for the 99%, and I'll see if I can get a co-author to join her. Oh, that's awesome, because uh, Tithi Bhattacharya wrote that with her, as well as Nancy Fraser. We've had a lot of people asking us to get Nancy Fraser on the show. That's awesome. This is Hell where the coolest musicians get their news. We want to thank all of our guests who appeared on this week's show. First of all, thanks to Colleen Hackett and Ben Turk, co-authors of Shifting Carceral Landscapes, Decarceration and the Reconfiguration of White Supremacy, which is their contribution to the collection Abolishing Carceral Society, which we are featuring in a series of interviews here on This Is Hell. Thanks to the second most amazing person I've ever met doing this show, Founding partner of the People's Law Office in Chicago, Flint Taylor, author of The Torture Machine, Racism, and Police Violence in Chicago. Again, that will be the gift next week for the winner of the question from hell. Thanks to Akiva Solomon and Kenria Rankin, co-authors of How We Fight White Supremacy, a field guide to black resistance and putting up with my white ass during that conversation. Also, thanks to uh, Barnaby Rain, a doctoral student at Columbia University in modern European political thought, who wrote the Guardian article, Ilhan Omar should be more radical about Israel, not less. And he also had this stunning essay at Salvage in January, salvage.zone, Jewophobia. You really need to read that to have a better grasp of what anti-Semitism is today. Follow Barnaby on Twitter at Barnaby Rain, R-A-I-N-E. This week's Hangover Cure was seven Hangover Cures. You just go back to the show and listen and find out what this week's Hangover Cure is. It's too long for me to read right now. This is not the media. This is hell. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Sorry about that. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell rage. All right, for Wesley. <laughs> he needs some help out there. But yeah, this is Eric, and it's now time for a classical and beyond, which comes at you.